This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt and I'm joined here uh, by Terry South, our wonderful producer. And in just a moment, Sean O'Neill will be here as well, running the board for us. In the meantime, we're uh, playing it solo here. And today we've got a great show. We're going to be speaking about the prison system and maybe some of the issues with it, as well as why aren't we granted more access to these prisons. And Dr. Matt, I'm sure, feels like he's... He's in prison because he can't seem to escape this horrible, horrible cough that he's got. And I can't seem to escape this terrible, horrible mood leg I've got going on. Mood leg? Mood leg. What's a mood leg? We talked about this the other day. Does it change color it's with changing. temperature? Or? <laughs> it changes color depending does it, does on... Does it predict coming storms? You, get you that know, I, I do wake up and uh, will just randomly shout out to my wife, I feel a storm coming. It's these new abilities. Just picture Peter Parker being bitten by a spider. Okay. He can climb on walls mm-hmm. and shoot webs. Yeah. Um, I can predict the weather. Okay. With a gimpy leg. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure how it works. I don't ask questions. I just follow it. Anyway, uh, a great show ahead. Uh, we're also going to be speaking about apologies. Who was it that sings that song, Too Late to Apologize? I don't know, but I know the song. I probably have it. I just don't know who sang it. It was a little, a little off key, but I, you know, it's not really a song I listen to a whole lot. No, I'm bugged. I have to look it up. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. That's going to eat at you until you know the answer. And then we're also going to be talking about, is dirt good for our kids? You know, there's always this, oh, you can't touch that. It fell on the ground. Or, oh, you're good, That you, the five-second rule, you can still get that. But maybe dirt is a good thing. So, we've, as I said, we have a great show. Terry South is still looking up the answer to oh, who wrote. It's, it's One Republic. Really? With Timbaland. Oh, isn't that, didn't, isn't that the guy that does those uh, shoes? No, that's a tiny that's Timbaland. A, that's a brand of shoe, but okay. this is a, a rap artist with... One Republic. Huh. They cofabulated something. Okay. Is that even a word, cofabulated? <laughs> it is it now. Yeah. It is now. So, yeah, some sad news waking up this morning. In addition to discovering Dr. Matt won't be in today, uh, my Los Angeles Dodgers lost last night. But I guess you have to lose every once in a while. How many have they won? They've won. They, if they would have won, it would have been their 80th game and it how many you have what it's (laughs) august you still have all of september which is yeah really and then there's like you know the playoffs start what mid-october no 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 uh the last game is october 1st so they'll start shortly after that but i mean they lost to the number two team in their division but they're they're like 14 games ahead of them right so it doesn't matter yeah you're gonna lose you can't win them all you can win most no, they have to win. Well, they'll win. We've been waiting for they, too long. They have done enough to purchase <laughs> a World Series. Now they actually have to execute, and they seem to be doing well. They'll pull it through. I know it. I just know it. 
Anyway, all that fun ahead. But first, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? So North Korea says it was carefully examining the possibility of launching a preemptive strike on the U.S. territory of Guam. Just hours after President Trump said further threats from the rogue regime would be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Oh, great. Which is really close to a statement that President Harry S. Truman made after we dropped the... uh, nuclear bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. You can watch it on YouTube. I kept seeing that all over the place. Like, hey, there's this video of Truman. It sounds like something else. Wow. Uh, Trump's comments came following reports that North Korean military is able to produce miniaturized nuclear warheads that can be attached to ballistic missiles. North Korea's state-run news agency published a statement from a spokesperson for the Korean People's Army who said preemptive strike plan would be put into practice on a multi-current and consecutive way in any moment. What is multi-current and consecutive way any moment? Hmm. I'm not sure. I have no idea. It seems like it's a lot of words. I need to condense that. Yeah. This is early this morning. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told Americans that there is nothing to be uh, imminent. There's no imminent threat to be worried about sleep tight. Okay. So I, who you, I don't who take you a lot of. I don't take a lot of comfort in that statement, but. Again, we uh, something that keeps happening is that Trump says one thing, his Secretary of State says another thing, <laughs> and we're not exactly sure who's. What's the policy? What's the directive? Are we fire and fury, or are we sleep tight? You're fine. This is essentially a bunker in here, right? No, we're pretty su- no, 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 no. Oh no! But there is. I saw this yesterday. You're worried about the North Koreans, and if they have a missile that can hit us with a nuclear weapon, they they. In theory, have a weapon, a missile that could get over here. It's only gotten like the Sea of Japan, but because of the way it's working, analysts look at it and think maybe. Yeah. yeah. Now they're saying they have a weapon they can make small enough because you have to make it small and light enough that you can carry it on this missile sure. all the way over here. Yeah. They're, they're, they think they have that, but they don't have like a nose cone that can protect all that from reentry into the atmosphere. Hmm. And they don't have like guidance system to actually track and target and specific point so they're still a ways out they're a ways out and and you watch the news and it's like there's a countdown happening that's kind of the the feeling that people are putting out there and then you get the state department that's like settle down we're okay so i think that the the thing to do jimmy kimmel did a skit yesterday where Uh he goes out on the street and he talks to people and he asks them, these are just people in Los Angeles. Yeah. And he's, he's picking the people that are goofy and they're going to give the right answer he's looking for. And so he asks them, should we attack North Korea? And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then he holds up a map and he goes, point to North Korea. And nobody <laughs> knew where North Korea was. So, Wow. It's kind of funny. So I, be a little informed. Be informed, but it's not a big deal yeah. at the moment. It's a big deal because, you know, they have a weapon and there's a lot of, you know, ramped up discussion. But... They're not like an countdown situation. Yeah. So. I got to check that out. It's still uneasy to just hear somebody say, yeah, you sleep tight. And then somebody else is saying fire and fury and yeah. explosions. And We've stuff, got so. time. So um, moving on, the manufacturing sector holds an important place in our political imagination. The common wisdom is that nearly 30% decline in U.S. manufacturing jobs since 2000 was a key factor in the uh, the current you know, the last electoral process because of the problem with manufacturing jobs. Yeah. That's that's why the election ended up the way it did. The subtext of this idea is that these manufacturing jobs are desirable. 
and American workers wouldn't give them up easily. But according to uh, analysis out of the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve, the rate at which workers are quitting manufacturing jobs rather than getting fired has remained steady even as the number of jobs has fallen. Uh-huh. The trend today is that manufacturing workers are quitting their jobs at an accelerating rate, suggesting they're leaving for better pay and working conditions in other fields. While the loss of manufacturing jobs will have been devastating for many communities, it also is true that many workers leave manufacturing jobs if given the chance. Interesting. So they're saying the people are What's leaving on before they get fired because they find another job, yeah. a different field, they're moving somewhere else. So it's not just they're gone and there's nothing. Right. Some people there is. There is a problem there, but there is a, a large chunk that are able to move on to something else. Well, that's encouraging that there's more work to be had out there. Some more uh, manufacturing helps. Yeah, that, that's a absolutely. good indicator of a strong economy, but mm-hmm. if we can do something else. This news came out yesterday. I found it very disturbing. Disney announced Tuesday it's <gasps> dumping Netflix. Oh, I know. In 2019, Disney will end its streaming deal with Netflix as it launches its very own streaming service later that year. Disney and Netflix struck their deal back in 2012. Uh, it only kicked into effect this last year. I started seeing a lot of Disney movies, like Moana just showed up on yeah. Netflix. I'm like, whoa, look they were at that. on there all that long. And uh, it appears that, uh, so Disney's new streaming service will host its latest movies, starting with its planned 2019 releases of Frozen 2 and Toy Story 4. Disney said it also intends to make a significant investment in developed movies and TV programs exclusive to its streaming platform. Mm. The platform will be based on technology developed by BAM Tech, a video company founded by Major League Baseball. Really? In, uh, oh, ESPN. Well, no? No, th- this is separate they- from everything. This Major League Baseball, It's so far it looks like it's the best streaming uh, platform technology that's out there, right? Interesting. Every day they stream every single baseball game at the same time. Ooh. And you you click on their app, it just opens, it doesn't fail. I, I believe HBO built their streaming service on top of Major League Baseball's technology. Wow. And now ESPN, or not, Disney is buying a huge chunk of it for like $1.5 or something like that. So they can buy a chunk of it and build their streaming platform in the, with this service. So you're saying I still have a year left to watch Rogue One on Netflix? Yes. Okay. And apparently those movies will stay. The movies that are on Netflix right now will stay on Netflix. Really? But they will all, I mean, the new movies will all show up on the Disney app, not on There's whatever not gonna that be, will be. I guess, I guess that is part of their original agreement with Netflix. Right. So they're okay. not going back on that. They're just going to stop giving them new content. Yeah. In addition to its uh, theatrical streaming service, Disney in 2018 will launch an ESPN streaming service. Now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we get on to yeah, ESPN... Yeah. At some point, those Disney movies that are on there now are going to expire, as they typically do. There's, so, an, there's an end to the agreement. So, but initially, at that point, they'll take it and put it on their Disney app. Right. Okay. So initially, that stuff will be there, but you know, all these deals run out and content leaves. Yeah. Okay. So what? What about ESPN? They're they're going to launch a streaming service that's separate. I, what, what they've been talking about is right now, if you have a cable subscription you can go and put your passwords in and get espn content right online or through whatever whatever device you have mm-hmm. and then um now what they're, they want to do is have a standalone service that you can just pay a fee to and receive espn content that'd be great that you you, you don't need a cable service cable package you can just Give them like 10 bucks a month or whatever and you can watch your sports there i'm all for that the problem is oh no 
if every, everybody out there has their own service, CBS has one we talked about yesterday. They're going to launch their new Star Trek right. series there. Disney has theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, much to my uh, sorrow, I guess you could say, at the beginning of August, all uh, DC Comics cartoons <sighs> on Netflix were removed. No. Because DC is launching their own streaming service. Oh, boy. Because they're going to put their movies, they have they have hundreds of cartoons and all kinds of stuff they can put on there. That's its own stream. So now you have to pay ten bucks here, ten bucks here, ten bucks here. So we're paying 10 just bucks as here. much as cable. Yeah. Eventually, once you wow. and it'll be more because it's not subsidized by being together in a package. Oh they're my each goodness. individual. So then it's like, what do you pay for? Yeah. Now, now, now your choice is becoming even more confusing, and you're not getting what you want. It's more expensive. I guess we just don't watch TV anymore. Just go to the theater to see the Disney movies. Go to a restaurant or bar for the games. There you go. And then uh, read comics. I guess. It's, <laughs> it, my, my kid's like, let's watch this, Dad. I go, nope, that's been removed. Sorry. He goes, oh. he goes, is that on the DC channel? I went, yeah. He goes, do we have that? I go, no, we don't. He goes, oh. oh. It's, hard to, it's hard to explain all this to a six-year-old. This is annoying. It is. This is a problem, just like you said. I didn't realize it before. And finally, this might get your hopes up okay. in mankind and humanity in general. The Little Caesars Pizza may be changing the pizza game. The chain is unveiling a machine. The company says it will test run, which allows customers to skip the line, grab their pizza, and go. And that's the only pizza place with a line, by the way. It is. It says, according to the Detroit-based pizza company, the Pizza Portal is the first heated self-service device that streamlines the process of getting pizza, letting the customer pick up their mobile order with hot pies waiting for them. Customers get hot, freshly prepared custom products in hand seconds after they walk in the door, says their press release. Seconds. The news news services uh, the new service is aimed at helping customers have an easier and faster way to get a pizza. Using the company's mobile app, people will be able to order and prepay. The app uh, notifying customers when the order is ready. Then upon arriving at the store, the customer can skip the line, input a three-digit PIN or scan a code, and retrieve their order from behind a glass window. The Pizza Portal, also called the Reserve and Ready, hmm. as they're trying to market it that way, I guess, will undergo a trial run in select city stores and expand other markets later this year. I'm guessing there's going to be a bit of a learning curve, and yeah. there will be big lines, bigger lines maybe even initially. When you're... T- Putting in codes or trying to scan your yeah. phone, people can't necessarily get that right the first time. See now, I, not to not to beat up Little Caesars too much, but can't they take some of this money, which is I assume is substantial, right, and just charge us maybe a dollar more? Improve the pizza. Improve the pizza. Well, I would pay a dollar more for for a little better pizza. Do you want speed or quality? Uh, I want it's, quality. It's tough to have both. I really want quality. They, they're over focusing the speed. on speed. I, I just it's so rare that I, I feel like I need a you know, all of a sudden last minute I need a pizza right now. Mm. Usually I plan a little ahead. Even if I mean even our last minute meals are at least an hour or two in advance. Right. Yeah. I go for quality over speed. Well, if you're driving home and you want pizza now. I would probably just go through Wendy's and get a frosty <laughs> or something if, if I had to eat on the run. Anyway, these are uh, first world problems, by the way. Nothing to be too concerned about. Uh, coming up next, though, our, we'll be speaking with our guest, Heather Ann Thompson, who is talking to us about a problem that maybe we should be concerned about. 
our country's prison system. That's up next. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. The severe heat in Texas prisons are linked to several deaths and lawsuits. A new court order is forcing authorities to move over 1,000 Texas prisoners to cooler cells, saying the inmates need air conditioning. In fact, the judge ruled that temperatures in some of the prisons are unconstitutional. Do prisoners deserve the same human and and constitutional rights as those of us that are outside of prison? Well, here to speak with us today is Heather Ann Thompson, Ph.D., author of the book Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy. Heather, uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Great to be here. So this is such an interesting topic, and I I read your article, and I, I I was hoping you could tell us, first of all, what are your thoughts currently of the American prison system? Well, one of the things that your listeners should know is that I didn't actually know very much about the prison system um, throughout most of my life. In fact, I was much more like, I think, every person out there, which is that I just knew that there were prisons and that people did bad things and then they got sentenced and they got locked up and that was the end of it. And it wasn't until I started doing research for my book, which was about um, a prison protest, 45 years ago, and I really started to dig into it, that I understood, and that was, by the way, 13 years ago, uh, I understood (laughs) that we have really been, you know, sold a false bill of goods about both what prisons, what we think prisons are doing, what actually happens behind those walls, and that it turns out it is a real uh, ethical and moral crisis, that there are really terrible things that go on in our name. And that the people behind bars, it turns out, are in fact us. They are, you know, our children, our our uncles, our aunts, our, our friends, people right. who have made bad decisions. Um, and it turns out that we would be horrified if we knew, in fact, what happened to most people uh, that were sentenced to prison. Interesting. I want to talk a little a little bit about access here in just a, a minute, but first I want to ask you, why do you think it is America has way more people in prison per capita than other nations? Well, that's a, a great question, and actually it was one that really perplexed me. I couldn't understand how how could it be that um, our country, in, in, in many measures, is more democratic, uh, more egalitarian than, than so many on the globe, and yet we have more people in prison than any other country, including the most repressive, the most totalitarian. And it turns out that um, it's not why we thought. Uh, we thought that that's because our people were committing more crimes, that we began this huge prison buildup because crime was rampant in the 1960s and 70s, and that we had no choice. And it turns out that that's actually not the case. We began a major, major war on crime and war on drugs, when crime was remarkably uh, was not remarkable, certainly not remarkable from a historical standpoint. We had many worse decades before it had not responded this way. So the way that we understand it now is that we made a policy choice to treat, um, you know, social ills, uh, everything from poverty to drug addiction to mental illness through the prison system. We became very punitive 
uh, rather than through a health system, through a social welfare system. And that accounts for our numbers in large part. Wow. You know, during the break, our producer Terry talked about uh, somebody that he talked to in prison that wasn't uh, all that concerned that he was there in prison. You know, there were plenty of open basketball courts, never had to wait to play a game. And obviously, it seems like most prisoners would prefer not to be there. But do you do you feel like uh, for some prisoners, it's it's sort of a big timeout rather than than these prisons are actually trying to help them fix their behaviors? You know, that's actually it's a it's a great question because I do think that that description of prison, um, you know, guys laying around <clears throat> playing basketball, having a great time, watching television getting free meals, um, that is, in some respects, the false bill of goods I was talking about. Right. It isn't that some people don't uh, make the best of prison. That is to say, particularly people that come from horrible social circumstances, severe poverty, uh, drug-addicted families, uh, you name the host of problems they could be coming from. Uh, for some, prison feels like a bit of a relief. Indeed, uh, if you have no money to finally get uh, decent meals and to finally get health care, for example, could be welcome. But it is a sad day in our nation when that is where people have to go to get basic human needs met. And the reality is that for the vast, vast majority of people, uh, that is not the experience. I have been in many prisons, and I can tell you that this idea of people laying around partying and, and um, you know, living high on the hog, it's just, it's ridiculous. Most prisoners are actually being fed on far too little food. They have no money so that they're subject to very exploitative uh, prices in their commissary just to get basic things like underwear and shirts. They don't get to see their children because they're moved to prison so, so far away uh, from the communities um, where they were, where they live. Um, their phone calls, people profit off of these places. Phone calls are, you know, $15 sometimes for wow. a conversation. Um, this is a this is a very very exploitative ugly place, and the problem is um, we've we've decided it's okay because we don't we don't see this as an extension of our society. Yeah, you know you you mentioned that it's it's obviously so sad that some people feel like they have to go to prison to get some of these necessities that they lack in life. When we lived in Seattle, I was in a grocery store and witnessed a, a man uh, have to wait for the police because he was caught shoplifting. And uh, we were told that, you know, this is a problem that that homeless people will will purposely try to get caught so that they can spend time in a jail cell. So they actually have a place to sleep. That is exactly. that is so unfortunate. Um, so we mentioned when I introduced you here at the, at the beginning of the interview, we uh, mentioned the the example of the Texas prisoners being moved to cooler cells. Do you feel like prisoners should have the same rights as people who have never committed a crime? Absolutely, because the one thing that you do not give up in the U.S. Constitution just because you are convicted of doing something wrong is your citizenship and your humanity. Yeah. So, you know, we have to separate out this question of how does one take responsibility for a bad deed versus do they stop becoming a human being? Do they stop becoming part of our body politic, our citizenry? 
And it, this all gets very muddy when we imagine these people to be uh, axe murderers, serial killers, and pedophiles. Uh, people get very, very clear in their mind, oh, well, we don't care what happens to those people. Well, first of all, um, <laughs> I suggest that if, if it turned out that any of those even horrific people happened to be one of your family members, you would want them to take responsibility, you would want them removed, but you certainly wouldn't want them tortured and you wouldn't want them abused. You would want them hopefully fixed. Absolutely. So return to society, they would not uh, commit more harm. Um, the reality is that in prisons today, like the ones in Texas you mentioned, I just did a story on prisons in St. Louis, similar situation. Um, I mean, these cells were about 115 degrees. Imagine being in a box. There are no windows. There is no airflow. There is no water. And you are baking there. And people literally die. Uh, prisoners are not the most healthy group anyway, because remember, we've already talked about these are people mentally ill, people who are poor people with bad health conditions even to start with often. Um, but we're also talking about kids. You know, we again, we, we don't know who we're talking about when we say prisoners. We're talking about um, about 77,000 juveniles in our society. These are kids, 10, 11, 12 years old. And if they're locked up in states like Alabama or Texas or, you know, even in St. Louis, there's not a stitch of air conditioning in those places, and they're essentially locked in sweat boxes. That's inhumane. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you've done. That's, that's not what the jury sentenced you to. They sentenced you to confinement. They didn't sentence you to torture. Right. And, you know, it's kind of a scary thought when you think about all of these people around the world that have never committed a crime that, given the opportunity, might do something rather violent or illegal, you know, if the power goes out or if there's, you know, mass hysteria. And, it, you know, that's that's all conjecture, of course. But uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Heather Ann Johnson, who's giving us a peek into the U.S. prison system. And, Heather, I just want to uh, get back to that question about access. So, first of all, how much of our tax money goes into supporting these prisons? Billions and billions of dollars. And it depends on your state, and it depends on a lot of factors, how many institutions of correction a given state has, but it is it is billions and billions of dollars. And again, that might be money that the society decides is worth spending, but it is really extraordinary to imagine that we hand over more cash now for prisons than we ever have. And, and indeed, this is not a finite amount of money, or, or this is a finite amount of money. This is money that we would have been spending on communities and schools. And we do so without asking for any sense, any accountability of, is it effective? Does it make our society safe? And just in the last five years, we've started to do some real probing, um, a real research probing. And guess what? Not only does it not make our society safer, it actually makes it less safe. Really? Heavily incarcerated communities are frayed communities. These are communities with children with higher poverty rates. These are children. These are communities with higher violence rates. So it turns out that this, these, these mass prisons we're building don't make us safer. They actually make us less safe. The way we treat people inside of them is quite inhumane, and I suspect most people wouldn't be able to stomach it if they see it firsthand. And then, of course, there's the thing that you mentioned just before you reintroduced me, which is this question of, who are the criminals? 
um, there's this wonderful website. It's, it's, I don't have anything to do with it, but I came across it for my classes, and it's called We Are All Criminals. And I invite anyone <laughs> to, to go to this website because, of course, it does remind us uh, that um, there's no such thing as a human being in this society that is, uh, that is pure, right? That everybody has done something. And the question is, why do we have a system that punishes some people for the same things much harsher than others? Right. So that's everything from drugs to mental illness to um, even theft. Um, So, again, we're not talking about let's excuse criminality. We're just saying equal justice under the law, first of all, right? Let's police people equally, let's arrest them equally, and let's treat them equally once they are arrested. But also, let's treat them as we would want to be treated. I, I suspect that our listeners, uh, you know, young people and old alike, um, we would never want to be judged for the rest of our life for our worst acts. Right. We would want to atone for our worst act and then move forward as a part of our society. So that's the core of it. And that's why when we spend billions and billions of dollars, at the very least, we should have access to prisons to see what goes on in them in our name. Okay, so let's talk about that. You know, we mentioned that we're spending billions in in tax money on and funding these prisons. Why is it that we ha- there's such an overwhelming lack of access to these prisons? And then also, let's talk a little bit about why that is so important to gain access for us. Well, the fa- the question of why we don't have access, I must say, um, I I get asked this a lot. In fact, that's why I did the article that you mentioned, and I have to say, I, it still baffles me. Um, you know, historically, we had this kind of what we called the hands-off doctrine on prisons, which was to say that state prisons could run any way they wanted to because they didn't want the feds looking over their shoulder. This goes back to the kind of era of um, heavy emphasis on state rights. We still kind of have that. That's, that's part of the ethos. But the bigger problem is this long, long history of not treating prisoners as human beings. And then from that, everything else stems. It means that they don't have the right necessarily to reach out to the outside. We on the outside don't have the right to talk to them. We put our faith in their keepers to do the ugly work of corrections. Well, we have some checks on that. We have freedom of information so that we can, you know, request, for example, from a prison, how many hours of solitary confinement do your 10-year-olds do in your juvenile facility? Like, we can ask that question through freedom of information, but all they have to say is, that's a question of privacy, or that's a security issue, and then we learn nothing. Um, So there's a long history of trying to get access, but an equally long history of institutions pushing back and saying, under the guise of it's a security risk or it's a privacy concern, not telling us anything. The upshot is when we don't know, horrible, horrible things go on behind bars. And that's a problem. Again, we're speaking with Heather Ann Thompson, author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. And she's she's helping us understand the U.S. Uh, prison system a little better. And when we return, we're going to continue the conversation and uh, get into a little more the uh, nitty gritty of the prison system and and how we compare to other countries. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. 
back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And we're speaking with Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, who's a native Detroiter and historian on faculty of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the departments of Afro-American and African Studies, History, and the Residential College. And her recent book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy, has been profiled on television and radio programs across the country, and it just won the Pulitzer Prize in history. Congratulations, Heather, and welcome back. Thanks so much. So uh, before the break, we, we talked about the problem currently of a lack of access and and why it's important, really, for us to have that access we are paying, you know, this. Our tax dollars are going into supporting these prisons. Uh, but what about what about the role of private prison companies? Do they? Is that something that could help out? Are they? Would those be humane? Are they cost effective? Talk to us about private prison companies. Well, unfortunately, that's not a problem solver. Um, we we uh, talk a lot about private prisons in the media. Um, it turns out, though, that that's a, actually a very small proportion of our prisons. There's only about maybe seven to nine percent of uh, all prisons are private. Now, that changes when we're talking about immigration detention centers. Those are overwhelmingly private, and they're run horrifically as well. Uh, but for private prisons in the regular system, they're not very many, and they're not better. In fact, when you run a prison for profit, it turns out you want to make money. And when you want to make money, it means that uh, your board chairman uh, will, like, lobby Congress for tougher drug laws and and lobby to make sure that the phone company can charge whatever it wants uh, of prisoners and so forth. So it turns out that injecting the profit motive does not make things worse. It actually makes – it does not make things better. It actually makes them worse. Um, and that um, the reason is similar. It's the similar question of lack of access, and the origin of the problem is similar, which is if we don't treat the people behind bars as part of our broader citizenry, say the way uh, folks in Norway do or the way the folks in Sweden do, if we don't do that, then we run into this problem that behind those closed doors, terrible things happen, and we only hear about them uh, when someone dies or someone is severely wounded or hurt. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned this focus on profit. It seems like there wouldn't be much concern for, you know, the air conditioner working properly or having quality meals and things of that nature. Exactly. Or even making sure that the children in there are getting educated or making sure that when people get their parole date that they're actually released. If you want your beds paid for, by the state and you're a private prison company, you don't want those beds empty, right? Yeah. And you'll fill that bed in Arizona, even if that prisoner actually comes from Hawaii, if you can imagine. And what does that mean? Well, that means that that person who may be in because uh, they're a, a severe drug addict and they're trying to get help, they won't see their families the entire time they're incarcerated because their families can't afford to come to Arizona from Hawaii. But we know that if we want someone to return to society and become a better human being in that society, uh, it's actually very important that they still have visits, that they still are tethered to that community. So privatization actually creates another problem for the system. 
Wow. And, you know, I'm looking at your article here and just taking a look at the numbers. 2.3 million people behind bars, another 840,000 Americans being supervised on parole, 3.7 million uh, being monitored on probation. Do, I mean, should we have that many people in prison? What what no. sort of options are there to other options to discipline these people? Well, to, to, to put the numbers simply, we've got about 750,000 people, uh, I'm sorry, 7,500,000 people under correctional control every day. Wow. And we've got almost 100 million people who are in this country with a criminal record. So the answer is clearly it doesn't work. Right. We're paying for it. It doesn't work. And by the way, once you have a criminal record, and we all know this, if we've had a, a kid with a problem or a parent with a problem, they can't get a job once they've had a record. They can't re-enter society because that's like a stigma, a mark on them. So then, of course, they're they're impoverished. So then the likelihood of them committing uh, an offense increases again, and it becomes this vicious cycle. Our prisons have a recidivism rate of about 70%. We would not pay money to a college if the dropout rate was 70%. Right, exactly. We would exactly. not hire a business if the profits or if the products we bought from that business were faulty at a rate of 70%. So, so imagine the amount of money we're putting in a system that has a recidivism rate of over 70%. It, it, they're failures. They don't work. So then the question, as you just said, is, well, what do we do? Well, the wonderful news is that that bar is actually a lot uh shorter, lower, closer to us than we might imagine. And first of all, we have international models of what other places do. They have much shorter sentences. They tether people much more to the communities from whence they came to make sure that they're still, uh, you know, they have a place to return to, that they have incentive to improve, they have incentive to do better. But we also have kind of a moral compass, and I always go back to this. Even though I'm a historian, I'm not a theologian, I still say that there's this moral answer to your question. And to put it quite simply, we should treat the people in prison the way that we would hope we were treated if we ran afoul of the law, or we would insist that our own children were treated should they run afoul of the law. So in other words, imagine the person you love the most, and imagine that they do something, even if it is horrific. Imagine you find out the worst possible thing you could find out about one of your loved ones. The question then becomes, what would you want to do? And it's quite simple. You would want them to take responsibility. You would want them perhaps to be removed from society until they got help. But you wouldn't want them in solitary confinement. You wouldn't want them tortured. And you certainly wouldn't want to give them a sentence of 50 years because you would know that every human being has the capacity to be redeemed and to figure it out and to get better. And if you put someone in prison that long, they'll never get better, right? They'll get worse and worse every year. So, the, so there's so many ways we can improve this, starting with shorter sentences um, and starting with just kind of disrupting our idea about what we think prisons are doing right now. I love those examples you just gave because, I mean, it's basically the golden rule. And, you know, not everybody obviously believes in God or a higher power. But if you're a parent, of course, you are going or, you know, if you have another loved one, you're going to want that person to be able to make the change or you would want to be treated fairly if you were in that position, too. So, And we've gotten so hard hearted that when someone says, 
oh, so-and-so just got a sentence for five years. Our immediate reaction in the society is, are you kidding me? Only five years? Yeah. But the thing is, in other societies, people understand that five years is a long time. And I always tell my students, when you enter college, think about it. Can you even imagine who you're going to be in five years when you're a year out of college? (laughs) Like, you will change so much in those four years. And by the fifth year, maybe by then you'll have children, you'll be married, you know, who knows where you'll be, right? Yeah. And you got to put five years in perspective. Well, we hand out life sentences and 30-year and 40-year sentences like candy. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, we just have to adjust our thinking, and we can't do it if we don't know what's really going on, thus the question of access. Heather, we've got a few minutes left, and I know this is kind of a big question to, to open up at the end of the interview, but... Uh, do you believe that there is a racial bias in the process of who's getting the prison time and who's not getting the prison time? Well, there's no question. Uh, and I can say, look, I'm a white woman, and um, I, I see very, very clearly that white people in general, including you know my own children, are less likely to be pulled over than um, people of color, whether they're Latino, whether they're African-American. We know that that's true. We know that white people actually use more drugs. More white people use drugs and sell drugs than than black people, but that's not reflected in the drug arrests. Uh, We know that police are deployed in black neighborhoods far more than in white neighborhoods, even though, again, there's tons of drug use, tons, tons of domestic violence, and so forth. So, yes, our system is skewed actually before prisons, which is that we have to start treating uh, people of color as human beings, not just not just prisoners, but before we even get to prison, we treat all people as human beings uh, with equality under the law. And then everything else will start to sort itself out, right? Because we won't have so many people policed. We won't have so many people in prison. Yeah. And then, Heather, just in closing here, what's something that we can do? People that do not have a criminal record, what's something that we can do to better understand the prison system and, and maybe not be so quick to judge other people who do have a criminal record? You know, I recommend everyone at a university to uh, reach out as that university into the local prison system so that your students can actually uh, get to know them, actually do courses inside, teach courses inside. We have a program called Inside Out, which is phenomenal. It's national. It's something that could come to BYU or any number of places. Um, it's a life changer. It's a it's um it's a way of doing community service. And if we don't want to com- you know if we don't do that, we can set up community organizations to help children of the incarcerated. You know, reading, tutoring, and the minute we do that, all of a sudden we are we have access to that world. Uh, and the more we know, the more we can tell other people. And also, of course, to just keep demanding answers. If you read in your local newspaper that prisoners are protesting, ask yourself why and ask yourself what's going on, not take the position of, oh, well, what do they want? You know, another color television? Because that's a myth. And, and we have to not, not fall prey to that. Heather, on, Heather Ann Thompson, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. Her name is Heather Ann Thompson, and uh, she is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. And she's done a, a wonderful job of helping us better understand the American prison system. 
When we come back, we will continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. We just finished speaking with Heather Ann Thompson, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author of, uh, where did that go? Oh, here it is. Of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. We just had a great conversation with her about the U.S. prison system and some of the problems that uh, occur there. And uh, now Terry South has a bit of news that he wants to share with us. So... I had like a hot water heater go out over the weekend. We yes. called a company. They showed up. The mm-hmm. guy had his truck. It was all that way. When you have to step away from like a company situation and find an independent contractor to do something, ah, it becomes very taxing because you're like, how do I trust this guy? How do I know? There? There's certain services you can go and check backgrounds and see if they're you know, better business bureau, what's yeah. their licensing, do they have insurance, that kind of stuff. But it's still tough because you're kind of just taking this person's word. I, I had my bottle, my uh, basement remodeled and the guy just, he, I mean, he had a company and a website and all this, but still, I mean, you can just set that th- those types of things up. Mm-hmm. How reputable is that person? Yeah. It's kind of a, it's, it's a stress for some people as you're doing this. This story out of Florida, a contractor apparently came up with a morbid way of getting out of reimbursing angry clients. Mark Anthony Perez, 52, being accused of botched renovations on an 825-square-foot home in, in Florida and then faking his own death to avoid the disgruntled <laughs> owners. Oh, no. um, Glenn and Judith Holland hired Perez in March 2016 to put in a new kitchen and remodel their bathroom and install a new water heater, among other renovations. They gave Perez a key in April and headed back to their home, their home in Pennsylvania. So it sounds like they had like a summer home. And uh, over the next eight months, Perez demanded more money and more money and didn't really do any work on the house. And then he just sort of disappeared. Interesting. And uh, they had to pay Perez $7,000 for this home that was in shambles. But when they they texted Perez, they got a message back that says, this is Mark's daughter. Dad passed away on the 7th of December in a car accident. Sorry. Wow. Oh, my goodness. As they rented a nearby place and paid other contractors $15,000 to fix the work that was already done by Perez. Um, they they found that he wasn't licensed. He hadn't gotten the right permits. They heard rumors that he wasn't dead. <laughs> and uh, finally, they got police involved. And now it's a criminal matter. And he was uh, put into court. And it says, I never thought someone would go to this extreme to rip somebody off. Yeah, and it's tough when you live out of the state. It's it's tough to monitor that sort of thing. You're putting a lot of thing. faith. Even, Absolutely. even in my situation, I'm just upstairs. This guy was in the basement fixing my basement, and he did a great job, and we had a great – it was a great experience that way, but still, it's kind of a challenge. Luckily, he didn't die during the transaction. Yes. We did have a painter that was in that room with no air circulation for like Ooh. 12 hours, though. And I went down, and I gave him a bottle of water just was, to make sure he was alive. Wasn't lead paint, was it? I, no. It's okay, the good. paint on my wall in my family room, so it's different. But yeah, it's just, it's, there's a challenge when a guy sends you a text saying he's dead. You know, Some people call in sick, some people call in dead. Whatever you have to do to get that money, I guess. Anyway, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. He's getting the help that he needs, getting over that cough. We wish him well. This is Jeff Simpson, or I should say, I am Jeff Simpson. I don't usually refer to myself by saying, this is Jeff Simpson. I guess if I answer the phone that way. Joined here by Sean O'Neill, who's running the board for us, rescued us in our time of need. And we've also got Terry South, our wonderful, wonderful producer here. We've got a great show ahead of you. We've already spoken with a Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, about uh, the U.S. prison system. And during this hour, we're going to be talking about apologies. You know, we we sometimes will just throw out an apology willy-nilly. Maybe there's not a whole lot of meaning around it, but uh, there can be some danger in that. But there can also be some healing involved when you actually mean it. So we're going to be talking with Harriet Lerner about that later on in this hour. As well as, uh, man, it seems like every day we've got stories of crooks who are trying to pull a fast one and they just can't do it. And they do it in outrageous and amazingly silly ways. I mean, Terry just shared the story of the contractor who pretended to be dead in order to keep the $7,000 he was paid to do work, which he didn't do. But, uh, yeah. So if the, so if they're not pulling a fast one, are they pulling a slow one? Yeah. They're pulling okay. a slow one. They're pulling a slow one. They, they don't have the speed, uh, including a man who may have blown up a McDonald's bathroom. Sometimes I wish they would do that and just start over and actually have a good, clean bathroom, as well as a, a security guard who stole some money on the first day of the job. See, now that is just a, a really bad way to make a good first impression. What? Really bad. Give it a week. Maybe I know. Two. Wait, wait a little bit of time. Yeah, patience, patience. Yeah. Case out the joint. We might, shouldn't be giving you these tips, by yeah. the way. Well, we're trying to help. <laughs> I'm sorry. You two are sounding like Logan Lucky. Huh? At which you've seen that film, right? Yes, I have. I'm so excited. This is the the heist, the hillbilly heist movie directed by Steven Soderbergh that's coming out next weekend. He, of course, did all the uh, ocean. He did the Ocean trilogy. 12, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, a hillbilly, hillbilly heist movie. I don't know if I've ever seen one of those. Uh, okay. Yeah, and Daniel Craig plays Joe Bang, a bleach blonde criminal that gets out of prison to help. His name is Joe Bang. Wow, <laughs> playing against type. He's usually oh. this stuffed shirt, <laughs> serious kind of an actor. He, he but... has no British accent in this movie. Fantastic. He has the southern twang going on, and he does it <laughs> really well. This did I read that this is based on a true story? Did you? No, it's not. No. Okay. Oh man! Sorry, I don't know in why fact, I want it to fact, be based on a true story. If, if you if you stay for the disclaimer at the end of the movie, the disclaimer is all there. Oh, you know, and it is funny too how we see these movies and we are rooting for these criminals to get away with these illegal acts. I remember when I saw uh, Escape from Alcatraz mm-hmm. for the first time, and you know they put one of the most likable Hollywood actors in it, Clint Eastwood, right? 
And the whole time I'm rooting for him to escape. And then toward the end of the movie, I come to the realization, wait a minute, you had to be a really bad person to be to put be into Alcatraz. Alcatraz. Why am I rooting for these really horrible people to escape? Well, some of the people that were in Alcatraz were just malcontents in the prisons they were in. Yeah. So. Yeah, but still, why do we do that? We always cheer these criminals on. What does that say about us? And it's still never been proven whether they actually escaped or not. Mm, that's true. But they did make some wonderful masks. Although Mythbusters did get, you know, across the bay in the boat that they built. So, hmm. I doubt they had a boat, though. Oh, no. it was. They made a raft. They did out have of, a boat? They, did, they made a raft out of raincoats just like the prisoners did. Oh, wow. Allegedly. No one really knows. They never found the bodies. Oh, no, they found they found the raft that they had. Did they? Okay. Yeah. I didn't, they, okay. No, they had the raft. They had the oars that they used. They're, they're, I've, I've been to Alcatraz and seen the – I used to live in California, and so we'd, we'd go there with relatives a lot. But they would have – they had them on display there. Hmm. Huh. But no one's ever come out and said, hey, look at me. I survived. Yeah, or no one, family no, or no, anyone. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Hmm. Well, we're going to keep you updated on all this wonderful criminal news that we have here for you on the Matt Townsend Show. But uh, first and foremost, let's head it's over to the police blotter on yeah. the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. North Korea can successfully produce miniaturized nuclear warheads that can be attached to ballistic missiles, according to U.S. intelligence officials, The Washington Post reported on Monday. The development marks an important step on the Hermit Kingdom's ability to become a full-fledged nuclear power. The U.S. calculated that North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un now has as many as 60 weapons at his disposal. Some independent experts say that number is much smaller. Pyongyang's nuclear program has developed much faster than the U.S. officials had initially believed when the country tested its first weapons more than a decade ago. President Trump said that North Korea would draw fire and fury like the world has never seen. If it continues to intimidate the U.S., addressing Trump's comments, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the president was sending a strong message to North Korea in language that Kim Jong-un can understand because he doesn't seem to understand diplomatic language. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to know how they got all that stuff without us. I mean, aren't we spying on them, at least from the sky? Sure. Satellites. How do they? I don't know. You can't stop them. Well, they're getting smaller, right? Like you said. Well, they're smaller. I mean, but they're moving around big trucks with missiles on their the backs and they, uh-huh. they, they, they know when they fire the missile they know when they test a, a bomb because they got the earthquake sensors right. and they can so i mean there's things they can they can tell simply from photographs what they're what they're doing as mm-hmm. they continue to do this so there's many different ways who knows we may have people in country i would seriously think that we do Sean? And South Korea does. Sean, do you know? Sean's in, Sean knows all about Sean the, looks uh, a little shifty over there. NSA and CIA capabilities. <laughs> yeah, and me and Kim Young were just, you know. <laughs> You're tight. In other, in other news, the White House is considering a plan to privatize much of the U.S. war in Afghanistan in an effort to revitalize the stalemated 16-year war. USA Today reported Tuesday, Eric Prince, founder of the security firm once known as Blackwater, proposed that 5,500 private contractors, primarily comprised of former U.S. Special Operation troops, would advise Afghan combat forces and 90 plane private air force would provide air support. The U.S. military has 8,000 troops in Afghanistan to train and guide local forces, though senior White House officials are reportedly to be actively considering the proposal. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and Defense Secretary James Mattis are said to be opposed to this idea. Mm-hmm. You don't want to privatize a war. No. 
Unless you do. It depends on if you want to, you know, save money while continuing to fight a war. I just found out that 15% or 15 minutes could save you 15% or right. more in car insurance. Absolutely. Which is the answer to everything if we're to believe all the commercials. In other news, less than three years after he retiring from hosting The Late Show on CBS, David Letterman announced Tuesday that he will return to TV, or rather Netflix, yeah. with a new six-episode series in 2018. According to a press release, the still-untitled hour-long show... It'll be called the David Letterman Show. I mean, what are they going to call this? Oh, yeah. Uh, Letterman combining two interests for which he's renowned, in-depth conversations with extraordinary people and in-the-field segments expressing his curiosity and humor. So Johnny Carson apparently was the only uh, talk show host that knew how to retire. Apparently. Like once he was done, he was out of the public eye, whereas Larry King and David Letterman, they just can't seem to stay away. Not that I want them to, but – Did Carson have the options that these gentlemen do? No. Probably not. No. But You had had TV and that was about it. But Mm -hmm. David Letterman will still do interviews. Carson, once he was out, he was out and he had a very private life after that. Letterman acknowledged his coming out of retirement in a statement released by the streaming network. He goes, here's what I've learned. If you retire to spend more time with your family, check with your family first. (laughs) That is true. Thanks for watching. Drive safely. Yes. Got to make sure they want you to hang we, around that much. We kind of were okay with think, you think, being gone. I think Leno's done it okay. He comes back every now and again to be on shows and stuff. He, well, he still he, does stand up though. He has his own show where he's out test driving cars and. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Jay's Garage. There you he's go. still I touring. About that. So he does that. He's still tours. He's just not on TV. Yeah. Every night. I don't know. I think he'll he'll try but to find see, some way to get back. Did you see the party played on uh, Last Man Standing. No. Oh, it was hilarious. Huh. He 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 he's a garage mechanic on that show, and they keep, they make jokes like, "Well, yeah, you should host a you should host a talk show." <laughs> it, was, it was actually pretty good. And finally, with uh, three hundred fifty million, you could buy twenty million acres in Australia, and mm. you'd still have money left over. Or you could indulge in ten acres in California. Ah. Or you could buy the Chartwell Estate, a 25,000-foot uh, mansion, a man, a square mansion in the Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles, has hit the market for $350 million, making it the priciest residential property for sale in the United States. How many square feet? 25,000 square feet. I'm really close on this. I am just – I am only about $350 million away from You need a golf that. cart to get around that place. Right. It, it, uh, <laughs> it's the home that was featured in the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, really? Show. See, now that Speaking makes it – of Hillbillies, That, that yeah. gives it more value. Right. It says it was, added, it was built in 1933 but has been updated since, obviously. The mansion resembling France's Versailles yep. now uh, features manicured gardens, a limestone facade, plus a ballroom. Uh, tennis courts, guest house, 75-foot swimming pool, covered parking. Yes, it does parking, still have the pond out back. Covered parking for 40 cars. Whoa. Uh, yeah, I know. The home beats out the nation's next priciest listing by a full $100 million. That's a $250 million property, also in Bel Air, so probably down the street mm. a little bit. Includes Neighbors. A th- 30, it's a 38,000-square-foot <laughs> house, 12 bedrooms, 21 bathrooms, 40-seat movie theater. So that's the cheaper house. 21 um, bathrooms for 12 bedrooms? Yeah, but you right. get the movie theater. Right. you, you, you got to have some in the hallway for guests. They don't, you don't want to go into the bedrooms. I understand that, yeah. but, but I mean that's twice as many bathrooms as bedrooms. Well, right. you need a bathroom for your pets too. 
Oh, this is true. Yeah. And if that's not extravagant enough for you, another Bel Air home is on uh, under construction, expected to hit the market later this year for $500 million. Okay. The home is on four acres, reportedly includes five swimming pools and a 50,000 square foot master, or excuse me, a 5,000 square foot master bedroom. See, now that one I'll have to, uh, I'll have to save. That master bedroom is bigger than my house. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to save a little bit longer for that $500,000 yeah. home. Maybe, yeah. Or five hundred million dollar home. Five hundred million, yeah. These are so you know. There's say five hundred thousand. Forget it. You yeah. got that, man. <laughs> yeah, I can't even do that. Wow. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think I need that. Which makes the story from yesterday, where the the uh, the couple came into that upscale San Francisco neighborhood and bought the street out in front of all these mega mansions. Yeah. Because the city, it's a private road. Sure. That isn't owned by the homeowners association and they no one had paid the taxes on this road for 14 years and so or somebody 30 years. bought it out from underneath so them they put it up for auction and this couple bought it for ninety thousand dollars and now they can charge those for parking yeah and the people on the street aren't happy about this oh really i wonder why and so now they're they uh okay the people did, back the people us. the people <laughs> didn't know about it until the couple sent them letters saying hey you guys interested in buying your street back and they're like yeah. they're totally confused like what are you talking about huh? so, for a small fee yeah there you go yeah maybe that's what i'll do i'll buy the streets in these neighborhoods try it so terry last hour you mentioned the contractor that you had and that there's also the contractor that faked his own death in order to collect money for work he did not complete right uh we've got a story here about a security guard who stole money on the first day of work Hmm. so he's a security officer at a new jersey cash vault and armored car company and he was accused of stealing $100,000 $100,000 from the business on his first day of work. Hmm. See, I could have maybe like a few pennies here and there over time is going to add up. Right. But I think they might notice $100,000 missing. So uh, Larry Brooks, 19. Okay, so yeah. First time no, out. No, not really any work experience. Maybe yeah. he doesn't know that you're not supposed to steal from your employer. Hmm. Uh, he worked for Garda Armored Car Service. He was arrested after the theft, was captured by company surveillance cameras, and uh, was charged with theft for allegedly taking allegedly taking the cash Tuesday evening. And uh, security officers reportedly found eighty five thousand nine hundred dollars in a vehicle before police were alerted. Manis said there was no definitive conclusion of what happened to the remaining stolen money. Hmm. Sounds like masterminds. Yes. There was two million Zach, of that. Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> that was kind of a funny movie. That was based on a true story. Absolutely. It's actually pretty close to the true story. It is. Yeah. But they ne- there was two million that they never recovered That's from right. that heist. Yeah. Interesting. See, I remember I worked at a hardware store at a high school. Mm-hmm. And when the cashier... When their receipts didn't match what was in the cash drawer yep. at the end of the day, nobody went home. Right. And we're talking like 20 bucks. There is a little bit of leeway, but yeah, if it's $20, that's yeah. big enough to... And, and I remember people in tears saying, I didn't do anything, and then they <laughs> oh, went yeah. through, and it was some math error, and everyone's able to go home, but it, it was... They really put you through the ringer oh, yeah. over well, when, $20. When you bring the guys that are cracking their knuckles and to right, interrogate yeah. the cashier, yeah. you know, hey. And I'd walk back there and sign out and people are in tears. You're like, wow, why would you have a job that would just grill you like this? Or why would you do mm-hmm. anything 
I would do everything to avoid that situation. This guy walks in on his first day and the $100,000 disappears. They're like, yeah. well, we're not sh-. And then they find 85000 of it. You're like, mm. <laughs> See, maybe okay. he used the maybe he used the it's my first day on the job excuse. Did you take this money? Uh, it's my first day on the job. That's what you say. Anyway, I'm guessing maybe the $10,000 that's missing, maybe since this guy's 19 years old, maybe he went to someplace like McDonald's to spend it, which is interesting because there's another story about uh, illegal happenings at a McDonald's. The Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Office is looking for a man who is suspected of blowing up a McDonald's bathroom. The sheriff's office says surveillance video shows the man pacing back and forth outside the restaurant. Then he enters the McDonald's, goes into the bathroom, leaves the restaurant, and then there is an explosion. Hmm. Yes. The explosion happened in the men's restroom originating in between the stalls, deputies said. Investigators are still looking into what caused the explosion caused a lot of damage to the bathroom. Several customers, including children, were inside the restaurant when the explosion went off. But thankfully, no one was hurt. Lucky for him, no one was hurt. Yeah, no kidding. My goodness. Assuming it's him. Allegedly, yes. Some people pace. Don't you pace? I pace, but I don't pace back and forth. I'm usually pacing when when there's a baseball game on and I'm wanting my team to win. Sure. Who is your team? The Giants. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't pace back and forth. I pace either back or I pace forth. But when you do back and forth, it doesn't work. That well. is when you should be suspicious. That's just too tedious. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So be on the lookout for somebody that's pacing back and forth. Anyway, when we return, we are going to be speaking to our next guest, Harriet Lerner, about apologies. And maybe both of these men in, our, in these stories here could have apologized. Hopefully they, they will if they haven't already. The importance of the apology and uh, the damage that can happen when you don't apologize correctly. Coming up next here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM Channel 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on uh, BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. According to our next guest, the two most important words in the English language are, I'm sorry. A sincere, heartfelt apology can be the source of healing and peace, while a bad apology can cause quite a bit of damage. And uh, here to help us understand how to apologize correctly is Harriet Lerner. Harriet Lerner is a psychologist who focuses on the psychology of women and family relationships, Lerner is best known for her scholarly work on the psychology of women and and family relationships, as I said, and for her many best-selling books, including The Dance of Anger and Why Won't You Apologize. Harriet Lerner, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. I'm delighted to be here. So I've got to know, just right off the bat, what caused you to start studying on apologies? What caused you to write this book? When I would tell colleagues and friends that I was writing a book called Why Won't You Apologize, they would 
roll their eyes. You know, the apology is not exactly a sexy topic, (laughs) but we're all connected. We all screw up. We all unwittingly hurt others just as we're hurt by them. So the need to give and receive apologies is with us until our very last breath. And as you were mentioning, when done right, apologies can be deeply healing. And when apologies are absent or done wrong, they can put a chip in the very foundation of a relationship or even end it. So this is a really important subject. So is it fair for us to just expect people to get over it and not have their feelings hurt? Or should we actually apologize? Why is that so important? Well, it's really important because the heartfelt apology can allow the hurt party to feel safe and soothed in the relationship again. And it tells them that we care about their feelings, that we're capable of taking responsibility for what we've said and done or not said and done. So it really validates the the hurt party. Um, the apology is saying, yes, I get it. I screwed up. I was wrong. Your feelings make sense. And I want you to know that I won't do this again. And the apology is also a gift to the self because our self-respect and our level of, in, of maturity and integrity rest on our ability to see ourselves subjectively, to take a clear-eyed look at the way our behavior affects other people. Um, so the good apology also earns us respect in the eyes of other people, even though we may fear the opposite. Yeah. So Harriet, why don't you, if you could please give us an example or two of a good apology, because obviously that's what we're trying to focus on, making good, uh, heartfelt apologies. Well, the good apology, a true apology, involves caring about the relationship and accepting responsibility for our part of the problem without a hint of evasion, excuse-making, or blaming, even when the other person's feelings seem exaggerated and they can't see their own contribution to the problem. And I think one of the best ways to think about the good apology is to think about how easily we muck it up and, and the common ways we muck it up. So, yeah, how, how do we muck it up? What are some examples of, of bad apologies? The most common way we muck it up is with the word but. I'm sorry that I yelled at you when we were trying to leave the house, but you were taking forever to get ready. Uh-huh. Or I'm sorry that I forgot your birthday, but I was flooded with work. Uh, everything fell through the cracks. This little word, but, almost always will signify a rationalization, an excuse, a criticism of the other person. So it doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The but makes the apology false. So rule number one is get your but out of your apology. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) 
Right. And the second most common way, and this is really important, that we mess up an apology is we focus on the other person's feelings and reactions rather than focusing on our own behavior. For example, I'm sorry that the joke I told at the meeting made you upset. I'm sorry if you heard it as being racist or sexist. That wasn't my intention. Um, That's not an apology. There's no accountability if we focus on the other person's feelings. The correct apology, a real apology, would be, I'm sorry that I told that joke at the meeting. It wasn't sensitive. It was out of line. I apologize, and I won't do it again. And let's see. Well, I'm thinking of other ways we muck it up. Obviously, an apology is empty if we continue the behavior that we're apologizing for or if there's not an adequate reparation when a reparation is due. And finally, I I think a serious way that we muck up the apology is we use it to try to get out of a difficult conversation or to just sort of, okay, you know, I've apologized, so why do you keep bringing up the affair? I said I was sorry 10 times. So these are the most common ways that we muck it up. This is really important for me because I it's making me think about apologies that I've made to my wife and that she's made to me and now I'm now I'm going to be thinking about uh, the best way to do that. Uh do you have any examples of of just really good apologies that you've had in your life or that you've made or really bad apologies that that uh, you've been the recipient of in your life? You know, it's it's really interesting because I've been studying this process of apology from from both sides. Why Won't You Apologize Um, is a book that pays equal attention to the hurt party, the one who's not getting the apology, where the other person, you know, they don't care about your feelings, they don't want to listen, they wrap themselves up in a blanket of defensiveness and rationalization and denial. They reverse the blame. And um, so I've been studying this for a long time, but, but what actually got me to sit down at the computer and start writing the book in terms of bad apologies that I've received is I received a really bad, sleazy, blame-reversing apology that, that was so disturbing to me that it actually inspired me to actually, you know, sit down at the computer and write the book instead of continuing to just research it. It's actually interesting, you know, what motivates us to, to write. And I, I think we all recognize when, we, when we're on the receiving end of an apology where maybe, maybe we were happy that the person said, I'm sorry, but later when we think about it, it doesn't feel right. It, it, you know, 
it actually, by the way, a, you know, a bad apology only deepens the original injury. So I'll bet every listener out there will have a story about a bad, vague, mystifying, blame-reversing apology that they received. For example, here's one I, I heard recently, not directed toward me. I'm sorry that I mentioned your weight at the party. I forgot that this is such a sensitive issue for you. And it, it really sort of implied that the woman he was apologizing to was overly sensitive, that yeah. the problem was her sensitivity rather than he had made a stupid comment, an insensitive comment. So so maybe he could have said, I'm sorry for my insensitivity. Exactly. Yeah. Period. Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got it. Well, Harriet, let's do this. Uh, let's come back, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about over-apologizing and maybe uh, seeking uh, an apology from people who don't intend to give you one. We're speaking with Harriet Lerner, who is best known for her scholarly work on the psychology of women and family relationships and for her many best-selling books, including The Dance of Anger and Why Won't You Apologize?, When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We're speaking with Harriet Lerner, who is a psychologist who focuses on the psychology of women and family relationships. And Harriet uh, has been talking to us about the importance of good apologies and the damage that bad apologies can cause. Harriet, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, glad to be back. So, uh, Terry, our producer, and I, we we were talking during the break, and I I asked him, and I guess I'll ask you now, is it it enough to just say, you know, because you don't want to offend anybody, you don't want to seem insincere, but is it too vague to just say, I'm sorry, period? It certainly helps to name what you're sorry for. And that's easy to do if it's a small offense. For example, I happen to spill red wine on my friend's white carpet. And I mean, that's very easy to apologize for. And I just said, I am so sorry. And I didn't have to say what it was for because it was quite apparent. And then I offered to pay the cleaning bill. But when it's something more serious, when the injury is more serious or the other person is, comes at us, you know, with a criticism and they're confronting us for something they want an apology for, then it's more difficult. Then we're much more likely, likely to slip into vague, defensive language that obscures what we are actually sorry for. 
Yeah, it it does seem though that some people, the, the hurt party, they they want you to grovel, they want you to drag yourself through the mud and really pay for what you've done. So, what do, do you think that society expects too much from an apology or in the way of an apology? I I think it's actually rather common that. By the time a friend or a colleague or a family member confronts you, that they may have a lot of stored up anger and they will go at you in a way that has a lot of maybe exaggerations and distortions. And the big challenge is to open up your heart and really listen. And that's very difficult because... Humans are wired for defensiveness. We're wired to listen for the inaccuracies, the exaggerations, so that we can correct the facts. And what that does is it makes the situation worse, and the person gets even more, you know, intense and reactive. So the challenge, if the person is important to you and... They are, you know, your sense is, oh, my God, you know, they want me to to grovel and they're telling me that I'm not a good human being. The challenge is to really try to listen for the essence of what that angry party, who's really a hurt party, wants us to get. And listening like apologizing, again, is not a sexy subject. We're all much more (laughs) motivated to improve our talking skills than our listening skills. But it's so important because, Jeff, it's, it's not the words, quote, I'm sorry, that heal the injury, if it's something that really matters. The hurt party wants us to really get it. Right, We want the other person to really get it. We want the other person to validate and care about our feelings and to carry some of the pain that they've caused us to feel. So my advice is even when it's, you know, you're thinking, oh, my God, this isn't fair. That person is not taking responsibility for their percent of the problem. Their percent is 83% minus less. Try to listen, because no apology will have meaning if we haven't listened carefully to the hurt party's anger and pain. Listening is what gives our apology meaning. That's great. Listening gives our apology meaning. And it seems like uh, <laughs> seems like you've got a problem if you start assigning a percentage of guilt, you know, I'm I'm guilty by 75%, you're guilty 25%. Seems like there could be some danger in that too. Oh, absolutely. And I would add, Jeff, I am very guilty about that. I mean, I should say <laughs> on a personal note, for example, with my husband, Steve, I like to apologize for exactly my share of the problem. As I calculated, of course, never more than 47%. <laughs> And I expect him to apologize for his share also as I calculate it. 53%. We don't, exactly. We don't always <laughs> do the same math. You know, Steve's math is not as good as mine. So, you know, this, of course, 
leads to a downhill spiral. And the challenge is, if you're going to bring your best self to a relationship, to apologize for your part, and it doesn't matter what percentage. A real apology doesn't bring up the other person's crime sheet. So you apologize for your part, and you can bring up the other person's crime sheet, but do it in a different conversation so that it doesn't cancel out your apology. That's so funny because my wife is an accountant, and now I'm wondering if she's doing the math in her head on that as well. (laughs) And then also it seems like once you've accepted an apology, you've got to let it go, right? You can't just hold on to that, and you can't hold that in reserve for the next time that they upset you, right? Well, I suppose in an ideal world, if someone has apologized well and sincerely, we can let it go. However, if the injury has been very large, like I see this very often in, in families where, you know, we're dealing with um, big insensitivities and big hurts, one conversation isn't enough. So if you are the one apologizing and it's something very important, one needs to understand that an apology is often a long-distance run. And you may have to sit on the hot seat for many conversations to listen to the other person's anger and pain. And it may not be realistic to ask others or to expect of ourselves that one good apology is going to take care of it because that's not how it works. Is there a problem, though, or is there a danger in over-apologizing the person that truly, sincerely is sorry and they just cannot forgive themselves for the mistake that they made? I mean, it can it could also cause some more, even more frustration in the person from whom they uh, were seeking forgiveness, right? Well, over-apologizing is a problem at many levels. And... Of course, it's good to be self-loving and to forgive oneself if one has done the very best job that we can do in terms of apologizing wisely and well and taking responsibility and making reparations and letting the other person know that we're open for more conversation and that we will be thinking about what they've told us. It's not just going to slip out of our brain. Um, It's good to be able to forgive ourselves, even if the other person can't. You know, in terms of over-apologizing, just in general, um, because that's something women do more frequently than men. And in fact, the number one risk factor for being an under-apologizer is being raised male. And the number one risk factor for being an over-apologizer is being raised female. And women in my generation were raised to feel guilty and apologetic for, really, for 
for everything, for leaving our work for our children and leaving our children for our work and guilty about, you know, not having work and guilty about not having children and guilty about feeling guilty, etc. So, you know, many women are in the habit of delivering an endless stream of useless stories. I have a good friend who... You know, we were at a restaurant the other night and, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to sit here? Or, oh, I'm sorry, you were looking at that menu. Or, oh, I'm so sorry, I interrupted you. So it is true that some women apologize, over-apologize, as if we went to Miss Manners Apology Finishing School. (laughs) So I would say to our listeners, if you're identifying, it's good tone it down. The reason that that kind of over-apologizing is a problem is that it interrupts the normal flow of conversation. It will irritate your friends. It paradoxically brings the attention to you. It becomes about you because, you know, the other person has to stop what they want to talk about to reassure you. So my advice is if you if you have forgotten to return your friend's Tupperware, you don't have to over-apologize as if you've run over her kitten. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I know somebody that, that over-apologizes, and it kind of makes me worried. I, You know, I worry that maybe whoever she ends up marrying won't treat her as well because it seems like she's – I don't want to say – it just seems like – yeah, he would be annoyed with that or that he would use it as an opportunity to walk all over her. So uh, interesting. Well, if that's the case, she may be marrying the wrong person. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, uh, this next question I want to ask you is something that has been on my mind for a little while. Um, so let's say that somebody has done something to hurt you. And either they did it unintentionally or – or no, no, let me, let me rephrase that question. They either uh, did it intentionally and they didn't – well, I'm really stumbling over this question. Let's say somebody hurts you and they don't want you to forgive them or they don't know that you want them to forgive you. How how do you deal with that? How do you get beyond that when you don't have the opportunity to forgive somebody for something, in person anyway? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question, Jeff, but I would say that forgiveness is a very misunderstood topic for all of us. And there are a lot of myths out there. I have a chapter in my book, Why Won't You Apologize, that's called You Need to Forgive and Other Lies That Hurt You. Because people, there are so many messages out there that we have to forgive. If we don't forgive, we're less good and evolved people and we won't be able to move forward and we will have a life mired in bitterness and hate and this is not true this is not true you don't need to forgive 
a non-apologetic, non-repentant wrongdoer. You don't need to forgive that person if they haven't earned it. And you, can, you do need to find a way to not be waking up 3 o'clock every you know, morning <laughs> obsessing about the bad behavior of this person while that person may be having a great time at the beach. But you don't need to forgive someone who hasn't earned your forgiveness. Yeah, that answered my question. So thank oh, you very much. Good. Uh, Harriet, we want to thank you for coming on to the to the Matt Townsend Show this morning. Her name is Harriet Lerner, and she is the, uh, the best-selling author of such books as The Dance of Anger, as well as Why Won't You Apologize? And uh, she's helping us understand the importance of apologizing and really the correct way to apologize. So, Harriet, once again, we appreciate your time on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do some more empty news here on The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away uh, sick today. We wish him well. Uh, We've been sharing stories about people that have been in places that they probably ought not to be. And uh, how about a story about uh, an animal or a reptile or amphibian, I should say, that is somewhere... No, this is a reptile. That's somewhere where he ought not to be. Have you ever heard of a monitor lizard? Yes. You I've have. heard of it. I've never heard of a monitor. I don't know. I thought it was maybe like a lizard with a monitor taped onto it or something. Yeah, they have GoPros growing out of them. <laughs> well, a Cape Coral, Florida family said a monitor lizard is living in their attic. Monitor lizards can be extremely dangerous and experts warn to keep your pets and fingers away from them. Danny Toe said he's been uh, hearing scratching noises around the roof for the last nine months. His neighbors told him last month they saw a monitor lizard on his, roo- on his roof, but he didn't believe them. Well, recently he actually saw it for himself. I see this four-foot monitor lizard. This thing was huge. I thought I saw a ghost or something, Toe said. He said the lizard quickly ran through a hole in the, in the soffit of his roof and into the attic. There you go. He immediately called Ned Bruja the wildlife whisperer. I was not aware of Ned Bruja either. I love wildlife. <laughs> Bruja checked the area and noticed uh, claw marks on the tar of the roof. He believes a lizard was attracted to a rat in the attic. Oh, so that they're at least taking oh, yeah. care of the rat problem. That's sure. good. So, uh, <laughs> but he, these things get big. Yeah. If he's in his attic, this thing could fall through. Seriously, they 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 get over like about 200 pounds. Really? Uh, yeah. Some, Ooh. Have you ever heard of the Komodo dragon? Yes. That's a monitor. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, a 200-pound so, lizard in your attic. You, that's possible. Hmm. If it's a Komodo dragon. Hmm. Time out would be a whole, would have a oh, whole yeah. new meaning. <laughs> but I could see the lizard, you know, if misstep in the attic, you come through the drywall on the ceiling, boom. There's one in the middle of your house. 
Yikes! Yeah, yeah. Don't don't、uh, send your kids to timeout in the attic if you have a two hundred pound lizard up there. Well, it's probably not, probably not even nice to threaten that. I don't think it's a horror story. So that's you know. yeah. Wow. Okay. So、uh, when was the last time you checked your attic? Might want to get up there and make sure there aren't any two hundred pound lizards up no, there. No, after I put my foot through it, I don't go back up there. <laughs> Anyway,、uh, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We've got another hour of fun coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM Channel One Forty Three. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM one forty three BYU Radio. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away today. I'm here, or here with me is Terry South, our producer, and Sean O'Neill, who rescued us this morning and is running the board for us. And、uh, we've got a lot of fun ahead on the show. We've already talked about how the importance of apologizing and how to do it right. We talked about the U.S. prison system. And、uh, coming up on the program, we're going to be talking about dirt. Dirt is good. Is actually the name of the interview. So this is a, a Hollywood、uh, sort of gossip reporter. No, I,、oh. I, that's more like mud, and mud is not good. But dirt is good. No, of course he's going to be talking about. You know how, as parents, we freak out when some when our a pacifier falls on the ground and gets a little dirt on it, or you know our kid comes in and has eaten some of the dirt from the playground. That's that, with, with the first kid. Yes, exactly,、yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's how you know when you have a first time parent versus one who has more than one. The kid. next kid, you're like, ah,、oh, it'll be fine.、No、yeah.、Problem. But、uh, Jack Gilbert is the name of our guest, and he's going to be speaking to us about why dirt is a good thing and why maybe we ought to just calm down a little bit when it comes to raising our children.、Uh, we're also going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at, at BYU Sports Nation, and we have another empty news story for you. Again, a, a criminal. We have a lot of criminal stories. There are, but this one sounds pretty daring. This this is about a man who tries to steal a police car with the officer in the car. Probably not the best idea. No.、Um, usually, you know, when somebody but, wants, you to... know, points for creativity. There you oh, go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, but... or you know, you know, the 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 difficulty level of that one is. I mean, anyone is up can there. anyone can steal a car with no one in it. Right. Well, I don't know if I could. I don't、All、think、right. I'm equipped for that. You、I mean,、could. this is this is this is like you know a single a single flip versus a triple flip、yes. in diving. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I don't even think I could do a single flip. Anyway,、uh, and the, you know they tell you that if if somebody's going to rob your home, they don't want you to be there. So usually that happens when you're not at home, and、uh, we'll see. Why or how he decided to do that?、Mm. When we come up, 
or when we uh, when we get to that here in just a few minutes. But first and foremost, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. U.S. intelligence officials believe North Korea has successfully miniaturized nuclear warheads that can fit in missiles, reports Washington Post. That's a complex technological feat that sets Pyongyang on the path being able to launch nuclear attacks. The uh, U.S. assesses that North Korea is likely to have the capability of launching an intercontinental ballistic missile by next year, and the country is hitting these technological milestones much quicker than experts had previously believed. President Trump broke with what is seen as the current diplomatic policy by saying North Korea would draw fire and fury like the world has never seen if it continues to intimidate the U.S., uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson landed in Guam on his way back from meetings, uh, high-level meetings with Asian nation leaders, saying that Americans should, uh, should sleep well. Okay. Don't worry, we're not escalating. This is all, it's, it's rhetoric. There is a concern, there is a threat, but they're not to the point where they can threaten people. We just see them moving along a path. They have technology, it's advancing quickly, but can they actually use it? It's still up in the air. So fighting words followed by, you know, it's it's probably you, you can you're OK. It is interesting that one part of the government's trying diplomacy while another part is <laughs> tossing out language that may be yep. seen as uh, aggravating. But at the same time, it, uh, maybe the, the, what the uh, Obama administration had uh, this idea of like patient diplomacy, patient diplomacy that didn't seem to work. But then again, nothing's worked since President Clinton. So hmm. try a new new approach. I don't know. We'll see. You know, it's but, interesting to see if Trump actually wants to do this or if he's doing this because this is how he feels. This is what he feels people want him to do. Well, could be. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange situation because uh, you're dealing with uh, a country that doesn't really communicate well with the rest of the world. Right. And you end up just kind of lobbing bombs, verbal bombs, I guess, in, and they come right back out just as, as vitriolic. And, oh, he's got those in spades. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how to best, uh, what the best approach to this would be. We'll see how this turns out in the next couple of weeks, I guess. Yeah. Uh, buffeted by threats from Amazon, drones to delivery deliveries by golf carts, the, as it says here, beleaguered U.S. Postal Service is counting on different strategies to stay competitive. One of them, more freedom to raise prices on mailing letters. Hmm. After a 10-year review, the Postal Regulatory Commission appears likely to move on a grant to grant the Postal Service power to increase stamp costs beyond the rate of inflation, marking the biggest change in its pricing system in nearly half a century. A decision expected next month, the commission which oversees postal rates might limit how high stamp prices could go, but the price of a first-class stamp, now 49 cents, could jump, though it's not known how much. The plan has received praise from financial analysts, but raises the ire of mail or the mail-order industry, which could pay millions more for sending items like prescription drugs and magazines and be forced to pass on the cost to customers. You no know, more you, free shipping. You mentioned earlier how Jimmy Kimmel did that bit on North Korea and how a lot of the people that he interviewed couldn't identify on a map where North Korea was. Yes. I would venture to say that if you uh, asked people how much the current stamp is worth, a lot of people would not know. No, which is part of their problem because people aren't using the postal system that way, right. buying stamps to send letters. Okay. We had this experience in my house when my daughter got announcements for her graduation. Mm. Okay. She didn't know how to buy stamps. <laughs> right. 
Do you go to the post office to buy them? You can. <laughs> it's just go to the grocery she, store. She had never used a stamp up to that point. Right. Wow. Yeah, it seems like it's it's tough to go to the grocery store and not have them try to upsell you by giving you some stamps to take home with you. Ice or stamps every single week. No, right. thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Until we need them, and then yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, that that is a that is a problem. Email really hit the postal service hard, and now you have other shippers. Amazon's uh, in some cases are trying to set up their own delivery system, their own you know air freight system type of. You get away from these extra costs through these other companies, and they're going to have to raise prices to stay competitive. There, it's in the constitution that we need to have a postal delivery service. Yes, that's why, like the Senate and the House, Congress uses the Postal Service to do their business because they have to. Mm-hmm. Part of law. <laughs> but if you try and send a letter with somebody besides the U.S. Postal Service, it costs a lot more than forty nine cents. Oh, it does. Oh, yeah. So it is a it is a benefit, but they're they're hurting because no one uses it. As your your yeah. daughter is a uh, mm-hmm. example of apparently. Prime. <laughs> Did you get out the little digital scale too when you were no. okay? Because it may have just been – you may have needed like that two-cent stamp or like the 15-cent. Oh, no. These cent. were just cards. They okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Roxy Getter had a summer vacation she'll never forget. During a family trip to Africa in July, the eight-year-old climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, becoming the youngest girl – known girl to do so. She's eight years old. Good Holy cow. Her. The Florida resident, resident made the trek with her parents and her older brother. It was their first time camping. And on the seventh day of the trip, they decided to climb the 19,000-foot summit <laughs> – yeah, I know. I read that. I was like, what? You've what? never gone camping. Now you're climbing a mountain. Getter was born with a heart defect and had open heart surgery as a baby, making her uh, successful journey to the top of Africa's highest peak even sweeter. She told ABC News <coughs> that she's ready for her next adventure but might want to do something smaller. She goes, I would like to climb a little mountain, but not like six-night, seven-day mountain, as Kilimanjaro is. She says she would like to go to the top of a mountain for a couple of hours and then come back down and go home. Hmm. Not I'm gonna say camp this, on the hill. You know. this, I'm going to say this is not the same kind of venture that would be like Everest. No. Right. Which takes like two months. It, it's a, yeah. And multiple oxygen but, tanks. Yeah. But, but still, to just kind of go and do something like that is... First time camping and they go climb Kilimanjaro? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> it's a little extreme. Man, every other camping trip is going to seem a little it, disappointing it, after it, that. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, the comparison is just not there. And uh, finally, this may mark a trend that we will see probably growing going forward. The New England Patriots have bought two airplanes, becoming the first NFL team to own its own jets, this according to ESPN. Really? The red, white, and blue 767s will shuttle the team's support staff and team's equipment to the 10 road games they'll play during the preseason and regular season, while buying two 767s seems perhaps a little excessive for getting just 10 away games a year, chartering planes has gotten increasingly expensive for the NFL teams, especially as major airlines have decided to retire bigger charters rather than fork over the money to give the older jets updates required by the FAA. So they're going with smaller airplanes. So yeah. teams would have to take double airplanes to get anywhere. So the Patriots went, eh, let's buy some airplanes. So the NFL teams reportedly pay around $4 million a season. For air for flights, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, You've pa- got fifty people on a roster, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus the support staff, yeah, coaches, exactly. equipment. But they're going to put them all. The Patriots will use one plane as their primary transportation. The other will be backup. The seven sixty sevens cost around ten million each. Although if the Patriots plan to keep updating the number of Lombardi trophies painted on the tail, that could cost could go up as they have to repaint the airplane every year. They've got the money, but are the tires the proper inflated rate? It's it's all about 
if it's deflated or not. That's mm. right. Exactly right. Yeah, they've got the money. That's that's a drop in the bucket. Oh, it's no doubt they have the money. Yeah, I'm actually surprised more teams don't haven't done that. That's what I mean. It, it doesn't even have to do with them being in Boston or a market advantage or something. It's they have the money from the TV oh. contracts. They could spend that much. Twenty million dollars. Right. That's a running back. It's true. That's true. <laughs> but also, I would I would think I. I'd be interested to know if basketball teams do that because basketball teams do a lot more traveling than football teams. They, yeah. They all have uh, – see the, the – again the, – Or they may have deals with airlines. They do. They get charters. They all charter flights. Mm-hmm. No one just gets on a commercial jet and goes anymore. Well, but, unless you're – like a player that gets traded might do that. Yeah. But basketball that's teams, one player. The basketball players actually get two bags of peanuts. Yes. Mm. Instead of just one. Well, well they're taller. <laughs> but as they said in the story, there is the uh, the uh, the team we talked about just a minute ago. The teams have so many people they're moving exactly, and the airplanes are getting smaller. So the Patriots felt like we just need to make secure the big airplane so mm-hmm. we're ready to go when we need to go, and not have to charter two airplanes to get home and all those that those issues logistically. So. Yeah, but do you have to hire? But you also have to hire a flight staff, a flight yeah. crew mm-hmm. to run that. Although I, I guess John Travolta could do it. He's him. available. <laughs> Um, it seems like you know the the uh, sport that would benefit from this the most is Major League Baseball because they have by far more games than the other sports, and, but they don't make as much money per game as the football players do. True, because they play 162 games in a year. Yeah, and then there's the issue: they fly into a city and they'll stay there for a week. So I don't yes. know. You know, your airplane sitting in an airport, you pay a fee for it to be there. That's true. You got to pay the pilot. What would right. be smart, one. though? Owners in the same city. I could see owners in the same city actually sharing sharing the plane. the plane. They could, yeah. That all, would, all those things could. You be want possible, a cost yeah. cut? That's a cost cutting thing, right there. Right. Yeah. And a I baseball don't... team's moving. How many people? I mean, like what? You're, you have you're, a tw- twenty-five man roster, yeah. except it expands in September. But I mean, at the end, is it fifty people? 60 no, people? Uh, it's probably close to support 45 to 50, yeah. So it's not quite it's not quite the football team. So no. you could still use a commercial airliner be a, you know a normal sized airplane not one of these mm-hmm. bigger 767s yeah. with the NFL team on it. So why do you feel like this is a little bit of a change of topic but not really? Why are football players being paid so much more per game than baseball players? Is it because they, in many cases, will cause irreparable damage to their own bodies, or is football more popular, or is it both? There's more money mm-hmm. involved. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have a player's union that can negotiate and get a bigger chunk of the pie, Yep. and there's 10 games. Or there's, what, 16, 16 games? 16 games a season. A season versus over an entire season, you have, what, 100 and Right. If you're playing you know. more, you should be getting more, No, right? well, Because there's, it's only, also... there's only so much money. Yeah. Basketball and baseball are not as grueling a sport as football. Mm-hmm. And yet, everybody's I mean, always possibly getting possibly injured injuries. in baseball. <laughs> they are. Yeah. I mean, you can you twist an ankle or a knee or something a lot easier in, in baseball at, going around the bases. You get a blister on your hand, you're out for like two weeks. If you're a pitcher, yes. <laughs> He's got a blister on his throwing hand. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I love is when it's a pitcher... And he's got a uh, blister on his non-throwing hand. And he still's out, yeah. I'm like, what are you out for? Like, well, you have You're not to using catch. that hand. You have to catch the ball occasionally. They could roll it to you. You'd exactly. Be fine. 
<laughs> and when, when when the ball's in play, they hit the they hit the ground and like you know, I'm terrified that the ball's even around them. It depends on the pitcher, but most of them do. Yes, you guys are too harsh. That's too harsh. No, uh, uh-uh. not when a pitcher is making twenty one million dollars a season. This is my favorite sport you're talking about here, and mine too. Shame on you. <laughs> uh-uh. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so the New England Patriots, hmm. they have two their own, planes. They have their own jets. Oh, one, yeah. They're doing two, right? Yep, but one is a spare. One is a spare to carry all their trophies. Right. <clears throat> is that because they don't trust the age of the other one? <laughs> I don't know. I think they're the same plane. It's about wow. Two you know, you got to have a pair. Of course. You got a deal. Why buy one when you can – maybe it was maybe, a two for one. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. They, yeah. got him at, they got them at Costco, so. Yeah. It's a BOGO. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, it can't be Costco then because Costco doesn't typically do BOGOs. Anyway, that reminds me. I need to pick up a churro on the way home and uh, a bag of ice, 20 pounds of ice for a buck fifty. Not going to find that anywhere else. Anyway, I didn't mean for this to be a commercial – for Costco. Um, we, when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Jack Gilbert, who's going to be trying, he's going to try to convince us that dirt is good. Here on the Matt Townsend Show, when we return on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. You know, we often hear of ways to protect children from germs and exposure to bacteria, but maybe it's possible that the constant pacifier washing isn't necessary. A little bit of dirt and mild exposure to germs at a young age could increase their immune system as they grow older. Jack Gilbert, author of Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System, is with us this morning. Jack, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jeff. So I'm a parent of young children. I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a a two-month-old. And actually, my two-month-old won't even take a pacifier, but I know that that is a... uh, a, a spot of debate for a lot of parents, you know, that, oh, you drop that pacifier on the ground, you got to go and wash it off and sanitize it. Um, but why is that? What, where's the faulty thinking in that? Well, listen, there are a trillion species of bacteria on the planet, a trillion, right? That's, that's a lot, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that, uh, we only know uh, that a few of those, maybe um, uh, a tenth of one percent of them can actually cause disease and sickness. The rest of the microbes out there, even if we provide them with a host to colonize, aren't very good at, at getting inside and actually doing anything inside the body, right? Um, but your immune system still recognizes them. It still sees them as foreign objects. And by allowing the body to see them as foreign objects, you can actually train the immune system to become stronger and more resilient to disease and infection. And so there's a small study from Finland, for example, that that showed that uh, when parents dropped the pacifier on the ground and just picked it up and licked it, and that was actually correlated with a much stronger immune system in the kids than the parents that, um, every time that happened, grabbed a new sterile pacifier and put it in the kid's mouth. Why? 
Well, we think it's because the, um, the bacteria and the viruses and the dirt on the pacifier and the microbes that come from the parent's mouth after they've licked it can actually stimulate the child's immune system, causing them to have um, a, an immune system which is healthier and younger and less likely to overreact to um, other antigenic stimuli like foods or pollen or other things. Right. So then what is, I, I think I know the answer, but what's your opinion of the five-second rule then? Well, five-second rule is nonsensical, right? Uh, <laughs> if, I, if I dropped um, a, a, a piece of toast with some jelly on it on the floor, do you think the microbes are going to suddenly, like, cluster and crawl and, like, you know, drag themselves onto the food? Well, no, of course not. They're, I mean, they're stationary organisms for the vast majority of the time. So, you know, as soon as the food hits the floor, they stick to it. Right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's milliseconds. There is no, there is no rule. It doesn't make any sense. But it sure helps us. It, it sure helps us save face, especially in front of other adults when we drop a piece of food that we really, really want to eat. <laughs> right. It's a social construct, right? Not a scientific one. <laughs> um, but I, I love the, I love the premise. In fact, you know, I routinely eat food off the floor. I mean, it's extraordinarily unlikely. Um, I mean, uh, uh, such a low probability. If you, if, the, if you got sick from eating a piece of food that you dropped in on the floor in the vast majority of American homes or workplaces, for example, um, you should actually probably go and buy a lottery ticket because that's an extremely <laughs> rare event, right? Um, the vast majority of microbes on the floor are, are literally just going to stimulate your immune system in a, in a passive way. They're not going to cause infection. They're not going to get inside your body and make you sick. You know, unless you are severely immunocompromised, you know, like your immune system is kaput and not working very well. Right. Or you, are, or you have massive gaping open wounds. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you provide any microbe with a ton of resources and a defenseless body, it, it, could, take a, it could take advantage of that, right? Right. Um, what we, I guess what we're saying is that, you know, for the vast majority, 99.9% of people who don't have that problem, um, that kind of precaution is just unnecessary. So, uh, assuming that uh, you don't have a weak immune system, is it still beneficial to carry around wipes or hand sanitizer? Yeah, well, you know, um, if you if you're in the middle of flu season, um, it can't hurt. I would I would argue that you know an alcohol-based sanitizer used occasionally is fine. If you use it too frequently, you're going to damage the skin on your hands, and you might actually leave yourself open to more infections. Uh, because the, you know, the, once the skin is damaged, microbes can get inside and cause havoc. Yeah, uh, there, you know, there's also the old adage that you know, clean your food, hands before dinner. I've got no problem with that. I mean, <laughs> most of what we're talking about is getting your kids exposed to microbial sources. What I mean by that is like dogs and animals and dirt and plants and, you know, shucking them out in the garden or when you're you know, making them do some gardening chores, right? You know, no harm in that. Or, you know, um, I know uh, one of our local um, uh, nurseries where the, the kids are actually, they have a dirt day, a mud day, right? So they get to play around in the mud um, and get filthy, right? And we think that could be beneficial. Of course, afterwards you clean them up. Fun too. <laughs> right, exactly. Very much fun. But you know, you clean them up afterwards. You wash their hands in soap and water. You get the mud off. You make them look presentable for the social, uh, you know, standing, and and that's fine. Yeah. But it, but during that playtime, that's critical. That provides them with that exposure, and that's all they really need. Cleaning them afterwards, not a problem.
Yeah. You know, there are so many things that come up as a parent where, you know, you tell you tell your kids to do this or you tell them to do that. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't really know why you're telling them to do that. And I wonder if we took a poll, it'd be interesting to see how many parents, you know, really, truly believe that their kids must wash their hands before a meal and how many of them just do it because, well, that's what I did when I was a kid. So you've got to do it, you know? Hey, you know, I, I always use the adage, um, when I get on the plane, I don't tend to ask the pilot about their flying credentials, right? I just assume that they're going to do a good job in flying the plane. Um, <laughs> and for the vast majority of the time, we assume that the regulations or the things that we've been taught are beneficial, and therefore we accept them. I do that. I've done that before. When my first child was born, I accepted that he was he should have an antibiotic dose because he was born meconium, right? His, he had uh, pooped in the womb. Right, right. <laughs> in, the, in the birth canal. And so the, you know, the discharge was uh, brown, and so the doctors assumed there was a possibility that that could get inside his lungs and give him an infection. Now, subsequent studies have demonstrated that that's completely bogus, that there's, uh, in fact, children that get antibiotics versus ones that don't, who are born meconium, um, those that get antibiotics have no benefit, there's, i.e. there's not a greater or lesser increase in the likelihood of developing um, an infection. The antibiotics have no effect. So, you know, well, I accepted that from the doctors. The doctors told me what was relevant, and I went, okay, absolutely, give me an antibiotic right now. Now, you know, the doctors were doing it because, as far as they were concerned, giving an antibiotic, even prophylactically, wasn't a problem. Now we're starting to see that children that get antibiotics, especially in those early few weeks of life, could actually have an increased risk of developmental problems, right? And we know that from statistical studies where we look at large populations and, and see uh, what the effect could be. Yeah. Um, and now there are ongoing longitudinal studies where we're following kids over time and seeing if actually did that disturbance have an impact upon their development. Um, and that's, you know, some multi-million dollar uh, NIH enterprise, National Institute of Health enterprise now, where we're following kids proactively. And, and, and but these are ongoing questions. And that's the point, right? We are still investigating. We're exploring this world and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I mean, this is a different conversation altogether, but uh, money comes into play too because they can charge you whatever they want for that antibiotic. My wife opened up, she requested a an itemized bill for the baby that she just gave birth to, and they were charging her 10 bucks per pill for pills that we could have brought from home ourselves. Anyway, yeah, that's that's a different yeah, I mean, conversation altogether. But uh, yeah, um, so I'm curious to know. I, clearly, parents are doing this because they want to protect their children. But what what results from protecting children too much? Yeah, so I mean, if you if you literally eradicate their microbial exposure, right? So let's say you bring them up in an apartment block. They never see an animal. They've never been to a farm. They've never really been in the natural world outside um, that's a complete disruption the only microbes they're ever going to see are bacteria from you um, and your partner right you know and the the microbes that are shed from your skin and from your mouth um, and that that could be a problem what it seems to suggest is that children that develop like that their immune systems become old and what I mean by that is um, the you know you have these little soldier cells that run around inside your bloodstream and when they don't, they're looking for foreign objects, right? They're looking for foreign bacteria, looking for foreign antigens like uh, pollen, etc. And when they don't see them, they stay in circulation for such a long time, those cells get old. And when they get old, they get 
inflammatory. They get grumpy, right? <laughs> Best way of saying it. Yeah. Um, and when they finally see something, they overreact. And, the, and what that triggers many different diseases, everything from food allergies all the way through to asthma, um, and even conditions um, uh, like uh, we, we think like uh, neurodevelopmental problems. You know, we think that certain conditions like autism or behavioral disorders could actually be linked to um, a disturbance in the microbiome, which is linked to the immune system. And so we're playing around with this idea, right? You know, we're actually looking at ways of increasing the exposure to the microbial world so that your immune system stays young and vital, it's constantly being regenerated, and your, your body develops in the way in which your ancestors' bodies developed. I mean, you know, it's a fairly modern concept to sterilize your home as if it's a hospital. Yeah. Right? And, and that, that concept um, may actually be harming our kids more than helping them. I mean, if your kids are vaccinated and you take sensible precautions, like, you know, not putting raw chicken in their mouths, then, uh, then you, it's extraordinarily unlikely that they're going to encounter an infection which will kill them. I mean, you know, it's so unlikely, it's, it's almost improbable, versus the opposite, which is an incredibly high likelihood that if you don't expose them to lots of microbes, that they will actually develop a lifelong critical flaw or disorder like asthma. Right, you want your kids to suffer from asthma? Sure, go ahead, but it's not a nice thing. Yeah. We're speaking with Jack Gilbert, who is a professor of surgery at University of Chicago and the director of the Microbiome Center. He is also the author of the book, Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. And when we return, we're going to dig a little deeper into the mud here to uh, to talk to Jack about uh, how beneficial it is for our kids to experience these dirty situations. And and I also want to talk to Jack about what do we do, where, how do we make sure we get the most correct information? And uh, how do we uh, how we handle people that are trying to give us information that we didn't really ask for in the first place? When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Back to the Matt Townsend Show here on Sirius XM Channel 143 BYU Radio. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. And we're speaking with Professor Jack Gilbert, who is the author of Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. And uh, Jack, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, hi. So I I have to believe, and maybe you can prove me wrong on this, but I I have to believe that there are certain situations in which you would really want a person to wash their hands before or after an activity. Just a couple of examples. I think of somebody – I think of – Somebody leaving the bathroom and not washing their hands. I specifically think of the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry sees the chef that's going to prepare his food not wash his hands and the and the look of horror that comes over his face. Now, clearly, it seems like there would be some situations in which you, it's really beneficial for somebody to wash their hands. Yeah, I mean, I've got no problem with hand washing. I mean, I think people should wash their hands um, and make sure that they reduce the likelihood of hand to mouth 
or hand to food transition of microbes. It's, you know, if, if there's a possibility you have a gastrointestinal infection, right, you've got, um, you know, a nasty pathogen, nasty bacteria that's living inside you or a nasty virus that's living inside you and you've got diarrhea, then you want to wash your hands after you've been to the toilet, right? Sure. That makes most sense. Yeah, if you're living in a family, for example, where nobody is sick at the at the present time, and there's an extremely low likelihood that they have a hidden infection, then you know the, the, there's nothing really wrong with poop. Um, if you don't have an infection and there's nothing in it, then you could eat it. I wouldn't recommend it. I think it would be a ridiculous and disgusting idea, but um, but uh, it's possible, right? It's nothing absolutely dangerous about poop, um, apart from the smell, but it does carry <laughs> pathogens. So if there's pathogens in your environment, if there's disease-causing organisms uh, that you're interacting with, then you want to be careful of that. So washing your hands, there's nothing wrong with. As I said, you know, if you if you let your uh, your you said you have a two-month-old, you let your two-month-old play with the dog, and the dog licks its face, you don't have to get out a sterile wipe and try and clean their face of all the dog bacteria. In fact, it could actually be substantially beneficial. Children that play with dogs under the age of six months to nine months old. Um, actually have an almost 13 to 14% reduction in the likelihood of developing asthma. Right? Interesting. That's great. The dog is beneficial. Uh, but yeah, if you're, if you're around, you know, if, you, if you've just eaten, if you just cut up some raw chicken and you're using your hands to do it, then you do want to wash that board and wash your hands in hot soapy water. Yeah. You know, that's sensible. There's, a, there's an interesting adage though, right? You know, like uh, everyone uses things like Clorox wipes, you know, the wipes that have disinfectant on them. If you actually read the back of the package, you have to use enough wipes on a surface to make sure it's wet and leave it wet for about 10 minutes for it actually to be effective in killing bacteria on the surface. But nobody does that. People take out a Clorox wipe, they wipe the surface, and then they sometimes dry it afterwards immediately, and it, it literally has no effect. It's as effective at removing microbes as water is. Right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but people don't people don't think about that. And, uh, you know, we've been doing this for years. And has anyone called, you know, gotten an infection from not using Clorox wipes appropriately? No. You know, it's, it's extraordinarily unlikely. Yeah. There are always going to be instances when an infection could occur, when somebody could get sick. I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm just saying it's unlikely. And, and the potential benefits of microbial exposure outside of those interactions are great. So it's it's a balancing act. Now, are are families any less likely to be exposed to some of those uh, those microbes when it's it's just dirt that they're sharing amongst themselves versus dirt that's bringing in from or being brought in from another family or from kids from you know from down the street? Are they safer together yeah. than they are outside of their family? We 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 don't have any deliberate evidence or specific evidence to to say yes to that question. But however, um, you know, there's, a, there's actually an interesting hypothesis that our, our fear of the other, right, our xenophobia, if you will, yeah. our, fear, our you know, fear of different people coming into our environment um, is actually driven evolutionarily, right? Um, we developed a, a fear of other people coming near our tribe because when they came near our tribe, they brought other bacteria and potential other infections that would make us sick. Right. Yeah. And so um, our populations were selected for as humans were selected for in a, by providing a social construct which said our population is good and that population could make us unwell. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, if you, you know, in our modern day environment, that's kind of irrelevant if as long as those people are vaccinated and they 
they, you know, they take proper precautions, it's extremely unlikely that the other can make us sick. It's an interesting paradigm, right? You know, maybe all of our xenophobia, all of our fear of, you know, maybe our current president's fear of, um, of uh, you know, people coming into the country of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, dangerous swarming immigrants um, might be driven by a, um, an ancient fear of, of them causing disease. In fact, our current president is a xenophobe. Um, no, no, sorry, not a xenophobe, is, is a germaphobe. Yeah, um, he he uh, does actually take pro- prophylactic antibiotics occasionally um, because he has a, a fear of being infected. So you know maybe those two things are linked. Who knows? And just in closing here, Jack, I wanted to ask you a, a double question, really, because um, we we want to make sure that we get the most correct, up to date information. So first of all. How do we get that? Where, where's the best? Where do, what are some of the best sources of that information? And what advice would you give to parents on how to combat all of the unsolicited advice that they're getting from other parents? You know, that sometimes it can be really extreme solutions to problems. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, I, I deal with this a lot in the book. So Dirt is Good was written because if you go on the internet and type in a question, you get six different answers. Right. Um, especially on a lot of the blogs from people who are not necessarily trained in interpreting the results <laughs> of experimental studies, right? You know, people see a scientific paper and they take it as, they take the title as the absolute fact. Yeah. And it's just never the case. I mean, all, every scientific paper has nuances, it has caveats, right, that we have to embrace. So I wrote this book um, with my colleagues in order to provide parents with a list of advice about how to um, embrace some of the good things that we've uncovered in scientific knowledge and how to even understand when they might be being hoodwinked or sold a snake oil by somebody who you know, is less scrupulous. Um, in fact, when our publishers asked us, uh, you know, why we want to write this book and uh, and, you know, couldn't we just get all this information on the Internet? I said, but you can get a lot of information on the Internet. But this is the only place where we, or what I would feel comfortable uh, giving people advice about what's actually known. Now, what is known is evolving. But in this instance, we've captured all of the uh, extant and most relevant knowledge that can enable parents to make the right executive decisions about everything from antibiotics to probiotics to diet. Um, so I, I would say... If they want to know about it, buy the book. It's it's a tour de force of, of the current state of knowledge in this area. And maybe not listen to all those parents that are saying that essential oils will cure every ail that you have, every ailment that you have. Right. Yeah. You deal with that in the book as well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Jack, uh, we really appreciate you here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. His name is Jack Gilbert, and he is a professor of surgery at University of Chicago and the director of the Microbiome Center. He's also the author of the book, Dirt is Good, The Advantage of Germs for Your Child's Developing Immune System. Go look it up. Sounds like a good one, and we've uh, really appreciated him shedding some light on the subject here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, this is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he is out sick again. 
And uh, his loss is my gain because I get to speak with two of the uh, two guys with the cleanest hands that I know, Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation. How are you? Thou shalt wash my hands. <laughs> Wait, I have to wash your hands? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I we, don't know. We just I, I just started talking, I didn't know where I was going. Oh, okay. Sometimes we, I sometimes I'll start a sentence and I'll just keep talking and I don't even know where I'm gonna go after that. One of the greatest Michael Scott Michael quotes Scott. ever. It happens to the best of us. <laughs> uh, we just spoke with a guest about uh, dirt being good and how, you know, you drop the pacifier every once in a while. It, you don't have to freak out and go sanitize it. That a little bit of dirt could actually be a good thing. And maybe a, the dog licking your infant's face could actually, it, I didn't know this, but could decrease the risk of him getting asthma. Hey, healthy bacteria, the body develops an immunity to it. And you become stronger, right? And oh, yeah. this just in, we've been living for thousands, if not more, years. And yes, we want ideal situations for ourselves, but a lot of history has happened for our kind. It's going to be okay if one pacifier hits the ground. Yes. That doesn't How mean... did the cavemen deal with the pacifiers hitting the ground? Oh, they had little <laughs> rocks. They had them suck on rocks. They didn't have pacifiers, man. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no doctor up in here for childbirth. But it just not- makes me laugh, like the things we worry about now versus the things that have First been worried world problems. about yeah. historically. First world problems. Oh, I'm stressed about that one thing on my computer machine. You know, whenever I had a bad shot playing golf, I'm like, Ugh, it's so frustrating. I'm playing golf. Yeah. Right. Speaking of first world problems, Terry informed us on the show that Disney is going to uh, have their own streaming service, so they're not going to have Disney movies on Netflix starting in 2019. It was only a matter of time. so long. It was only a matter of time. In fact, I think they're behind in this. Yeah, like why would you not monetize that earlier? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Why weren't they at the forefront of this? But a now, lot of people like Disney movies. Just do your own thing. You yeah. don't need to go through anybody else. Yeah, but now we have to pay... It'll, Probably be like 15 bucks extra a month that we've got to pay to watch these Disney movies. Just get rid of cable and uh, order a subscription to Netflix, Hulu, and this new Disney service, and you're what, like 33 bucks a month? It's beautiful. Done. We're cutting as the cable. As, yeah. The, the, I mean, there's all this talk of like, oh, we're going to streaming. Stream. You have to authenticate your TV provider in many of these places to access certain content outside of a Netflix. Hulu, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we're not quite there yet. With like Watching sports online only, if you are isolated and you don't get text messages from friends in the moment and you're not paying attention to like social media, that's, then that works. Yeah. But if you do, you're behind. Like The tech is not quite up to the idea of the thing yet. Yeah. I see it's going that way, but we're not there. It people, will get people there. People act like we're there. We are not there yet. It'll get like, there. It is too delayed. You still have to authenticate for certain TV providers to get certain play. Eventually, yes. But, like, can the TV signal be uh, synced up with the web signal? Not yet. It's not yet. You know what? Maybe this will get people back into libraries when they discover, <laughs> hey, I, I can I can pay $20 a month or I can get this for free from the library. Libraries mm. need to institute, like, rooms where you can go and watch TV. Well, right? I think most people just bring so in their laptops. Anti-library. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get with the now, man. Let's mainly to read books. They can go in quiet rooms. You shut the door. You don't hear what's you know going on in the TV room. Okay, if you want to go watch a sports game, like we have Direct TV that There's you can check out with your room. with your library card. <laughs> 
But whatever you do, do not return that movie or TV show late because you will have the exorbitant <laughs> yeah, the, 25 yes. cent fee. The wrath of the city of whatever. <laughs> I, yes, I, no. By the way, when someone does like, hey, I'm going to cord cut, you know, I want that to be a formal process like breaking ground or a ribbon or the big check for a winner. You're going to have a big party? You should have like, a big party. If you're, if you're a cord cutter, you need to have, like, you you go and buy this cord from, uh, you know, Walmart or whatever and, like, these giant scissors and you, like, take pictures and post it on social media. I want that to be a thing because the thing now is, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, the gender reveal party. That's, like, the yeah the new big thing. Yeah. And you you don't mean, like, uh, I have a party and I announce to everybody that I'm a man. I'm 40. Right? I'm a man. Okay. That's, that's a different party. That's a different kind of party. Okay. So uh, real quick, what's coming up on your program here in just about four minutes, 45 seconds? Oh, you know, Jeremy and I got to watch some really, really interesting BYU football practice. You know, I say that kind of with a sarcastic tone. But no. really, there, no. there were some good things that came I out of practice yesterday. It. it was right. so fun. Uh, what did we see and why in the world it matters for the actual football games ahead and why defensive coordinator Elisa Tuiaki said his defense lost – the scrimmage on Saturday. Who made mm. some big plays? Uh, what were people saying? We'll recap practice, plus our two-on-one with Talon Shumway, a wide receiver who's emerging, Greg Bell, and the West Coast Conference men and women's basketball schedules are out. When did the Cougars play Gonzaga, St. Mary's? We know now, and we will discuss with the head coach, Dave Rose. Ah, studio. yes, that's one way to break down the schedule, right? Just bring the head ball coach in. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Greg Rubel. We've got Greg Rubel behind the mic with Greg Rubel coming up tonight at 6 p.m. He'll be behind the mic tonight. He'll be in front of the camera and behind the mic this morning as well. Yes. Good plug. Yep. Good plug, gentlemen. Well, have a great show, and we'll uh, hopefully, hopefully Dr. Matt will be back to talk to you tomorrow. Anyway, yes. Behind the mic with Greg Rubel tonight at 6 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Check it out. Uh, before we get to our hero story, we've got one more MT news story that we want to share with you. Uh, a 20-year-old Florida man was arrested after police say he tried to steal a car, not just any old car, a Fort Pierce police patrol vehicle. At the Fort Pierce Police Department <laughs> with a Fort Police with a Fort Pierce police officer in it. Hmm. Good luck with that one. Uh, it happened about 5 a.m. As Officer Roby Troutman was in his patrol vehicle at the main police station writing a report, and while he was in his vehicle, he heard the rear passenger side door handle make noise, and then the front passenger side door handle make noise, where he was positioned seated in the driver's seat of his clearly marked Fort Pierce Police Department patrol vehicle. Troutman opened his door and reported seeing a man later identified as Aaron Orlando Rodriguez III run away and hide behind another vehicle. Troutman and another officer detained Rodriguez and found two cell phones, a portable speaker, a $20 bill, and drug paraphernalia. Wow. Yeah, it's a little tough to pull off a police vehicle heist with the police officer still in the vehicle. Tough to do. Anyway, it's time for our hero story of the day. A South Dakota hero saved his friend's life after a botched cliff jump left 16-year-old Julian Vigil unconscious and face down in the water. 
The incident happened Thursday, uh, and cell phone video captured the teen attempted to flip from one of the higher jumping spots when it all goes horribly wrong. In the video, you can see Julian over-rotates, landing on his face and neck, knocking him out cold. Moments after hitting the water, friend Nathaniel Woodard realized something is wrong. Putting down his phone, he and another friend jump in after Julian. I saw him shaking real bad, and we all jumped in. He, he just didn't stop shaking, Nathaniel said. I hugged him from behind and pulled him out of the water. Uh, the problems didn't end after Julian regained uh, consciousness minutes later. Nathaniel said Julian didn't recognize where he was or what had happened. Paramedics would later tell Julian he suffered a concussion. While Nathaniel tried to get Julian to recognize his surroundings by asking questions like, What year is it? And do you know who the president is? Life light was called in. We pulled him out of the water, but he wasn't responding to us. He started remembering the date, the president, those simple questions. And Nathaniel says his brother, who is a paramedic, uh, but was not on the scene, is part of the reason why he knew how to handle his friend's concussion. Life flight was ultimately called off, and Julian was able to make his way out of the canyon and back to the parking area where paramedics were waiting. The hike itself is no slouch. The walk to the parking area is across several miles of uh, rocky terrain. And Stephanie Brave, Nathaniel's mother, says despite being a mellow and somewhat shy child, the act of heroics from her son is no surprise. He was able to think quickly, remain calm, and he did what he had to do. Brave said, adding, he's a hero. And he's our hero here on the Matt Townsend Show today. And that's going to do it for the show. We'll be back again tomorrow at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. And we're here every, every weekday on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio Sports. BYU Sports Nation is up next.